Aegon had been crowned when the conquest began, or arguably before it began. No one had actually bent a single knee other than people who had already bent their knee to him as their lord. But now that it was nearing completion, a second crowning became more sensible. And it made sense for a variety of reasons. He had wanted all along as a strategy to demonstrate his power as a dragon lord first, and then as a king, and with that power to overwhelm everyone. And what better way to demonstrate that by being ordained by the most powerful religious leader in the biggest city with Balerion on hand for all to see. None could doubt the stories they had heard of the ease in which the Targaryens had subjugated dynasties that had ruled for eons. Everyone would know and everyone would know why. But even with all those eyes on the dragons with all those knees bent to the conqueror, and even with the seven above seemingly accepting Aegon as their king, there remained many who did not. They didn't see it that way. Some chose independence, some descended into, I'd say chose chaos, but more like chaos chose them. Some followed different gods, so the ordaining of the High Septon didn't mean as much. But all would pay a high price for their shot at freedom. And I say shot because not all would be successful. Today, we discuss the unbowed and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Hello and welcome, everybody. We are live almost every 3 p.m. Eastern on YouTube on Sundays. You can catch the video anytime afterwards or an edited version on Spotify. And the audio only version is available everywhere you listen to podcasts and it's ad free if you listen on Patreon. Sean, uh, what do you got to drink today? I'm I'm boring as usual, chocolate coffee in a thermos. You know, I'm, I'm consistent at least. I do think that your shirt is kind of Halloween evocative. That castle looks like a ghost face with a flaming head. You're, you're right, it's a high tower shirt. We light the way the tower does kind of have eyes and a mouth and I don't like a carrot top head here, I guess you could say. <laughs> Yeah, it's jack-o'-lantern-ish, but tower style. That's why it's screaming. It's <laughs> yeah, it's fire. like, ah, my head's on fire. No, ah, I'm Carrot Top. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to make an orange drink. It's kind of creamy. You know, the, the naked protein drinks uh, haven't been, the, the naked drinks are there, but not the protein ones. So I've had to branch out. This is the, the mango naked drink, but with the Bolt House vanilla protein drink and, of course, Mountain Dew. So kind of orangey, Halloween-y. Sweet like candy <laughs> and crazy, just crazy and kind of scary like Halloween, too, because, you know, I'm afraid of what that would taste like. <laughs> I thought my Branzig shirt was pretty Halloween evocative, too. <laughs> yes. Demon horn brand. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, so shout out to our excellent and smart friend, Nina, who has received a question on her blog, goodqueenally.tumblr.com with one L in Alley. If Tywin was to remarry, what kind of marriage alliance would he look for? It obviously wouldn't be a marriage for love. What would he aim for? So check goodqueenally.tumblr.com for how Nina responds to this question. It's not straightforward, yet it is straightforward. I like her answer quite a bit. I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but it, it makes me think, why didn't Tywin remarry? It seems like that would have been a valuable strategic 
political move. He didn't want to. It's simple as that. He did yeah, not want to, and he thinks he's above it. it. Yeah, he's above it. He He's willing to tell people, you need to do this, you need to do that. But when it comes down to it, he's not willing he's not to willing. do it. Yeah, he's a huge hypocrite. We've yeah, said it a million times. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> but I wonder if... If someone had confronted him, who? But who? Literally, who would confront Kevin, Tywin? Let's say Kevin. Like, seriously, who something. confronts Tywin? Let's say Kevin that? does. Kevin, then, he'll shut him down. Exactly. Tywin's like, you have no authority over me. I'm not talking about. That's, it. So that's what he did to anyone who even yeah. remotely brought it up. Do you think internally it was just like he hadn't gotten over his wife, or? Oh yes, of course. Like there's no replacing her. Like he was, she was perfect for him, uh, and there's no, there's no, no replacing either who she was or her or the circumstances, their upbringing, as well as someone who was not too close to him in terms of their value views on incest, but still within the, the close enough to him that he could see her as an equal or, or someone that's not beneath him. <laughs> Maybe if not an equal, <laughs> not someone way far beneath him. So yeah, basically a huge hypocrite and very proud. <laughs> Uh, the combination therein and a bad father, yeah, all those things. We loved it. We love to talk bad about Tywin because it's so easy. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? That all rubbed off on his kids. I think that's fair way to call describe all his kids: hypocritical and uh, arrogant, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> and proud. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and he, it's it's very very well written. All of that, you know, the reason he evokes such like I was like, who who would talk about it? like because Tywin like. I, it's personal. Like we've thought about him so much, you know, and, and, and it's, it's, it's sunk in and, you know, it, it bleeds into real world stuff, like how real fathers can be. The fact that it can cause real frustration and you thinking about it means it had to be written really well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It just full, come full circle on this. Like, why did that, why did that slightly bother me just now? Cause it's so well done and it's realistic and it's like, damn, bad fathers really can <laughs> bring, <laughs> bring that, uh, that anger streak out. So anyway, yeah, so uh, questions, if you have any questions, whether they're live or something you occurs to you while you're listening, uh, while we're not live, send it to westeroshistory at gmail.com or type it in the comments if you're, if you're watching live. And this episode is brought to you in part by patrons such as. I, I like how, Aziz, you, you dub the newer patrons as new pledges and older patrons as veterans. That's a good way. Yeah. We'll start off with <laughs> a, a couple of veterans. Innovy, shadow binder from the eastern mountains and lakes. That one sounds pretty mysterious. Tree girl of House Glade. We speak for the trees. You go, tree girl. <laughs> and Lord George Stormsville, the cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. It's hard to say Lord George. Lord George Stormsville. Lord George Stormsville. That's that's up there with Irish wristwatch. <laughs> <laughs> Lord of Jorms scores. Yeah, never mind. Okay. <laughs> yep. It's <laughs> <That's> really hard. <laughs> a couple newer ones we've got here. Vanessa of Winterfell, champion of Sansa. Anyone who wants yeah. to be ex-champion of Sansa, I'm going to say your name. I'm going to give you some credit. <laughs> <laughs> you get Sean's eye that way. Narcosis, wet star Dane. Motto, a dry sword is a dull sword. Nice. I think Narcosis has been around, had, had, has, is a returning one, had been there okay. and, and came back. That name's uh, very familiar. I like that one a lot. Narcosis Dane. That's cool. Wet star. One last one, another mouthful here. Stives the White, Captain of the Hopeful Patriots, a band of exile knights. Motto, the world ends when hope dies. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> well, I hope hope doesn't die then because I would like the world to continue. You can find all these Patreon names at historyofwesteros.com, along with everything else we mentioned throughout this episode. Anytime we bring up patrons or links or any sort of thing that has to do with 
interacting with us or linking to our things, historywestros.com should have it all. You know, not only can you find those patron names, you could get your own patron name. Ooh, good true. Good, good true. Good said. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll mention episodes at the end of this one that relate to this one to keep you immersed if you want to stay in Westeros. And we'll also kick it off with a trivia question, the answer of which is also at the end of this episode. And as we've been doing lately, the new pattern with the trivia questions is the answer can be found within the episode. Who gave Princess Maria of Dorne her nickname, the Yellow Toad? Mm. Who dubbed her the Yellow Toad? Our first section is called Open Gates at Old Town, and we'll start it off with a quote. The greatest city in all of Westeros, Old Town was ringed about with massive walls and ruled by the high towers of the high tower, the oldest, richest, and most powerful of the noble houses of the Reach. Old Town was also the center of the faith. There dwelt the High Septon, father of the faithful, the voice of the new gods on earth, who commanded the obedience of millions of devout throughout the realms, save in the north, where the old gods still held sway, and the blades of the faith militant, the fighting order the small folk called the Stars and Swords. Yet, when Aegon Targaryen and his hosts approached Old Town, they found the city gates open and Lord Hightower waiting to make his submission. This is something that's a slightly puzzling that we've talked about and it affects the timing. Maybe not puzzling, but curious or interesting or worth discussing. And that by that, I mean that Aegon didn't know until he got there that they had surrendered, apparently. You know, maybe he probably had some scouts go ahead and they're like, they came back like, the doors are just open. I, <laughs> like, I don't think they're going to try to fight you. You know, I don't, it might be a trick, but I don't think that's a very good trick, just leaving your doors open. I'm like, <laughs> it's like, seems pretty uh, genuine, right? It seems pretty sincere. So it's, it's, it would have been really interesting to know at what point did they learn that, yeah, they're not going to fight you. They may have already known, they've already suspected it because, well, if they were planning on fighting, why not join forces with their overlord at the Field of Fire? Why wait and try for a second try, especially after the first one was such a complete failure? So that doesn't really make much sense, does it? So Aegon was probably at least suspecting that they were going to concede or that they already would. It may have been odd that they didn't send an envoy out ahead to announce this, but maybe that's also just how the history is recorded and isn't exactly how it happened. And I don't blame them either. I mean, I would have knelt too. I would have <laughs> knelt fast, and, but no one knelt harder than Old Town. I mean, they, they knelt big. They planned ahead. They had a whole cover story as to why they were going to kneel. The gods told them to. Like, they were very prepared. This was not a... Should we kneel? Okay, yeah, we better kneel or else. Now, this was this was very planned, <laughs> preordained, like ordained is is a funny word to use here because this was preordained. Like the moment Aegon sent out his letters, apparently this prophecy came to the High Septon or he started praying over it and seven days later, etc. So they had decided to bend the knee apparently all the way back when the crown land, before the crown lands were even settled. But they were also prepared, I suppose, to change their minds if Aegon just died during the conquest, which is maybe why they never said anything. Is that how you read it, Sean? Like they were just they they were leaving their doors open in more ways than one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't considered why uh, it did seem to me like for multiple reasons that they should kneel. Like, you know, not only does it seem like they just couldn't beat him. And they have a lot to lose, like their their castle and their people and their resources all getting burned by a dragon would be 
you know, not that it wasn't awful for Heron Hall to get built, but Heron Hall didn't have the history to it that Old Town has, you know. Oh, good point. Yeah, it's really young. And now Aegon has more forces than before after conquering those foes. Now there's extra people with them to come attack. There's all kinds of reasons. And I also do feel like their their prophecy, you know, here and there, maybe some people genuinely believed it, but it's a pretty easy thing to believe. <laughs> you know, like God yes, told me to yes. do the right thing. Well, it's it's going to do the right thing anyway, but uh, sure. The- God told me if I jump off this building, I will die. Like, oh yeah, did, did God tell you that or science? Yeah, like, I guess I won't jump sense, off the building. Like- whatever the reason is, <laughs> like, whatever justification. Either you way, but uh, but yeah, the, all three agree. <laughs> yeah, I did. They didn't send someone out ahead of time to announce that. Is it, interesting, and and again, maybe they did, but maybe it makes for less interesting of a story, right? Maybe it's more symbolic for Aegon to show up and her doors were open. Uh, rather yeah. than the middleman story of some envoy, or maybe they even tried, but the envoy couldn't get there, or maybe they had instructions only talk to Aegon, but they weren't allowed to talk to. A- I can I can see other behind the scenes minutia that is just it isn't as interesting as important for the story. Yeah, and, and we've seen this before throughout Fire and Blood and other parts of the history where it seems like is that really what happened, or is that just a way to kind of make it, make it look nice afterwards? And we're not saying like you know is is George fooling us here? No, I mean like. Did George write the history in a way so that it shows how the in-world historians would have done things that real-world historians tend to do? Something that we've come back to many times, of course. But this is an important spot to remind ourselves of that because just as, say, for example, the death of of Argalac the Arrogant, like, did he was it really just a lat one-on-one duel where they each wounded each other once and all very story? But that's why it's written that way. The story resonates. That's what they want people to believe because it, it it keeps them in place or makes them believe something that they think is important to upholding their authority. Or the story of Aegon, the story of Ori's Baratheon, this is something they have engineered. Just like the story of Old Town Surrender is not a story of cowardice, right? It's some, like when Torrin goes back north, a lot of his constituents will be like, well, that was cowardly. But we don't hear that about Old Town because it's like, oh, it's not us. The gods told us to surrender. Who says no to the gods? It's not cowardly when the gods tell you to do it. And it's just the same thing. It's not dirty to steal Argella Durandon and make her your wife if you're noble about it, right? And it's like, well, that's, you got to read between the lines. You're like, there's really no way to make that noble. But they're they're sell. They're trying to make it sound noble because they want this new ruler who's taken over a dynasty that existed for 8,000 years to, they want that to be a smooth transition, as smooth as possible. And, you know, making him look good is one of the best ways to do that. Making him look honorable. Along the same lines, some of the constituents in the North at that time might've been grumbling, right? But it's not the way the story goes. It's not the way the Targaryens want it to be told. They don't want the story to be this coward in the North is now one of our wardens right they want yeah, to be yeah. this wise man in the north did the right thing that's the yes the, the, the exactly. lesson and the legacy you know Aegon's not trying to shame them either he doesn't want them to bend the knees in and look bad he want because they're now his like second and third and fourths in command like you don't want cowards in your <laughs> your authority structure and your hierarchy structure or these people who look like cowards if they are you don't want them to look like that you know but you do want people that are wise and loyal and you know and know when they can win and when they shouldn't win when they can't you know and to, to use common sense rather than pride or or think of their own people think of their yeah the common folk beneath them and the responsibility you have towards them 
So, and, and everything that happened throughout the war, they decided they were going to bend the knee. Maybe they didn't tell anybody, but everything they saw throughout the war just confirmed that their decision was correct or that their command from above was correct. Like, yep, the gods were right about that one. And as you pointed out, Sean, and it just got worse. Like now Aegon's army is larger. Like if the time to stand up to them has passed. Like it's harder now than it was. Uh, and Nina points, point, points as well. The High Towers had a lot to lose. They had more to lose than a lot of these others. Old Town is the biggest city in the region. Of course, that event or in the realm. Eventually that changes. But again, we got to remind ourselves, King's Landing is not bigger than Old Town at this point. It's barely started at this point. Say it had been the second biggest well, yeah, that's still a lot to lose, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, that's you're right. That's almost a irrelevant point. Like whether it's first, second, third, it's huge. It's really important, and that that's what matters, not which exactly how large it is compared to the others. And the faith of the citadel, like it's not just the city; it's the heart of religion in the entire country. Like, what happens if they play it stubbornly? What if they play it like? Argalac or something like that and decide to go down swinging well at the end of all that you might have no more great sept in old town it might have been destroyed or the high septon has been killed or just really bad things that make it hard for everyone to get along afterwards like you don't want to it's the same thing. You don't want to cause that bad blood that lingers for generations. You want to try to minimize that. That's why if, if you're going to take on a family, you wipe them out entirely. Don't let, <laughs> don't let any of them survive so they can come get revenge later, like Heron the Black's family or maybe even the Gardeners uh, and maybe a few other lesser examples. But, you know, that's just one way to keep peace in a realm is to eliminate all those who would otherwise disturb that peace. It's not always just but it is uh, effective. To keep peace in a realm where the leaders are chosen randomly by the oldest born son. Like that's, <laughs> given that that's the random way you're choosing your leaders. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's already not a great system. <laughs> of course, they think it's a great system. They think, of course, well, why would you do it any other way? Well, it's like, why? Of course, that's the best system. Just because it has problems doesn't mean there's anything better. Well, of course, that's that's what we that's how we look at a lot of our systems. And it's like, what could be better? It sucks, but what could be better? Well, maybe there are better things. Anyway, so, and this is, we say it's, and we talked about this from the Hightower perspective and we, we covered this in the Under the Dragons episode. We have no way of knowing how sincere they were. They may have been com completely sincere. They may have truly believed the gods told them this, or maybe the High Septon did and Lord Manfred Hightower went along with it. Or maybe the other way around. The High Septon's the one who's a little bit of a politician but makes all the pious noises and Lord Manfred Hightower was the one that actually believed and was like, that's that. God said so. It's done. You know, So there's no way to be sure, but it's really interesting to think about because it's probably not simple. It's probably not, oh, he's just super devout and not political at all. Or he's super political and not devout at all. It's probably somewhere in between. It's also probably not just him, right? It's him yes. and the Septon and the other members of their family and the other, I don't know what sub-Septons would be called, or cardinals or bishops or whatever. And there's probably like some equivalent of like a maester and a master coin. There's probably a lot of people getting together trying to figure out how to manage this, right? And it, among those people, there's probably a mix of people who were like, we should stand up and fight. We should not sacrifice our people to dragons. What do the gods want us to do? And all those people 
will be so easily placated by saying <laughs> God told us. Like the political people, are like sure, that's a good story. Yeah, the the wise people, are like if that story works, let's do it. The 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 devout people will obviously go along with it. So it's. I was really mad that he surrendered until I found out that God said so. Then it was cool. I'm like, oh, okay, I get it now. Yeah, and that's and that's a great point Nina makes here too, which is how do you look at an undefeated, basically unstoppable rolling force here of Aegon and the dragons. How do you look at that and say, this isn't or like ordained, you know, it's hard to argue that the warrior isn't behind Aegon when he just beats everybody that, that worships the warrior more directly. And he's, and he does worship the warrior now at this point. So yeah, how do you ignore that the gods, you either have to say the gods have chosen this, or you have to say that the gods don't want this, but they're losing, you know, like, how do you frame that? It's difficult when, you live in a world when your beliefs exist because you think God's made it this way. So if the God's made it this way, then you have to look at what's happening and say, well, the God's made it this way. I guess this is how it is that God's Aegon is just steamrolling everyone. That must be what the gods want because you can't have it both ways. You can't believe the gods are in charge and then also believe the gods don't want this. You, know, you can believe they're testing you. You can always like do that sort of thing, but, but you don't have to believe that's not the only choice you have. You know, you can also say, this is what they I want. I don't want to create too much of a tangent, but plenty of people do <laughs> do that. <laughs> oh yeah, you can. Yeah, absolutely. But people that have a lot to lose tend not to <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the high towers, right? They're like, well, we let's come up with a reason that fits this worldview, but also gets us what we want <laughs> or keeps us from losing, you know, uh, keeps us from so dying either, and all our people dying. Yeah, keeps us from dying, which you, which I get, like, I think that's a, a fine time to tell a few lies <laughs> if you're going to save a bunch of lives. Yes. I don't think honesty trumps keep survival. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's something to be said for honor and honesty, but not at the cost of just, you know, people dying, especially other people, people who aren't right. you like yeah. that's, that's way that's even worse. So, Anyway, whatever was actually in these people's hearts and minds, we can never know for sure. This is what actually happened. Quote. Thus it was that no men from Old Town burned on the field of fire, though the high towers were bannermen to the gardeners of Highgarden. And thus it was that Lord Manfred rode forth to greet Aegon the dragon as he approached and to offer up his sword, his city, and his oath. Some say that Lord Hightower also offered up the hand of his youngest daughter, which Aegon declined politely, lest it offend his two queens. We discussed that marriage offer at the time in the Under the Dragons episode, so refer back to that if you're curious about, about it. We also, I believe, discussed some of it at the beginning of the conquest, beginning of the Fire and Blood reread, because there were several offers of this sort, and we covered them all at once rather than individually. So this is wise, like the Starks to Ben, but a little more creative in their justification. But also... Possibly a huge parallel, right? It, it might be prophecy. There may have been some supernatural dreaming or at least influence here and in, in, in the part of the decision, Neil, whether it was stated or genuine, whether it was just a cover story for kneeling or something that actually happened or both. We don't know, but it's very possibly uh, something that happened in both cases. Just a, a quick tangent, just thinking about that. Yeah, just for example, let's say that this knowledge of the others coming one day that that Aegon potentially saw, that Viserys saw, you know, that we, we seem to know that now. What if Torrance Stark saw it also? Or some other earlier Stark saw it and was passing it down? And similarly, 
even though I think there might be an argument for like, tell everyone, make sure everyone knows and is on board and is ready for this prophecy. But maybe that you seem crazy or you get twisted interpretations or whatever. But, but, but I'm just saying that might be a reason Torn might have known he needed to surrender. He might have known this was coming, but he still needed to put on the right show, went down, talked to Aegon. That might have been part of the negotiations, you know. Um, and, and I wonder too, that, cowardly. Yeah. right, right. And I wonder too, if that could have been passed down through generations of Starks and might've died when Ares burned the, the, the Stark of Winterfell and his oldest son, Ned might've just mm. not known, not known the prophecy. Anyway, I'm wondering if it's possible other people in other places were aware of the same prophecy that Aegon might have been aware of also. Just like we have wondered about the tracking down through the years of Aegon's dream and who it went to and who learned about it. If there was a Stark prophecy or if the Stark, if the, there must be a Stark in Winterfell, isn't just a political necessity, but may have some supernatural wrapped into it. And maybe that part was forgotten. Uh, some of the original reasoning behind it may have been forgotten. Yeah, that's possible. That's certainly or kept secret. Or kept secret. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that, that seems entirely possible. Again, going back to all ideas of like what's in their hearts and minds when they're surrendering to Aegon, there, there, maybe there really was a prophecy, and some people really did believe it, you know, or really even knew yeah. about it long ago, you know. And and who knows what like vast knowledge is in the High Tower? We know what was written here, but maybe they they framed it as the set will of the seven. But there could have been other prophecies or other writings that they referred to that may have worried them, but they didn't want to make that part of their cover story because they're like, we're not going to talk about some ancient text here. No one's going to care about that. That's just going to look cowardly or right. We don't want to cloud it. We don't want to confuse the issue. Yeah, because yeah. we do know. We certainly know they have a lot of knowledge, a lot of vast stores and of things that we couldn't possibly know, things that we couldn't dream of or guess at, both in their own tower and in the Citadel, perhaps that they would have access to both. And so something interesting too, they were let one of the deci decisions that they made or one of the results of their decision staying out of the field of fire was that they were not there for the restructuring of the reach. Now that may, they probably wouldn't have had any impact on that to be fair. They probably wouldn't have changed anyone's mind. They probably wouldn't have stopped the Tyrells from being given high garden and they may not have cared to interfere with that. But we're told that there was a lot of, Reach House is upset with that decision. Hightower is not among them because they just weren't there for that. They weren't part of the decision. They weren't there to gripe. And, and maybe since they hadn't yet surrendered, they weren't going to make any waves until <laughs> they were like, I'm going to kneel to you. But man, you shouldn't have given the Tyrells high garden, man. That was that was a bad call. <laughs> it could also it could also be because they knew that was part of the prophecy. They knew that oh. centuries into the future that they would still exist be subject to the Tyrells and need to team up with the Targaryens to fight the others. You know, they might've known like, Oh, well, it's, it's all happening. Look, it's in this thing. You know, if there was some kind of prophecy or dream of that regard that, that may have been referring to them marrying the dragon during the dance later, that would be interesting. Of course that would lead to very bad things, <laughs> but <laughs> that's the uncertainty of prophecy, isn't it? Yeah. So, it's certainly not the first time that they have bent the knee either, the, the high towers. They were kings of their own way back in the day. They had to be subject to the gardener kings, and there was a time when they weren't. But it was Lyman to Hightower who, rather than lose it all, which is a similar decision, is like, look, you either have to bend the knee and accept a new overlord, or you might lose your tower, your city, and all that. You can still keep it, but under my authority. And just like Lyman Hightower, Manfred Hightower took the lesson and was like, yep, better to lose a little authority than to lose everything. So 
pretty pragmatic, pretty smart. And from the Targaryen side, as much as we looked at this from the Hightower side, the Targaryen side is pretty interesting. What would they think? Would they think this was a little, would Aegon think this was a little, would he see the politics and the, the, the gamesmanship behind this decision and be like, sure, they waited this long to tell me they were going to surrender. Huh? Hmm. I think he un- kind of understood what that meant, that they were waiting to see what happened to see, to give themselves the option of backing out. Cause they could have support, like I said, not only did they not support their liege, they didn't support him. He could have, they could have show brought their troops to the field of fire to fight for him. If they had really been <laughs> on his side from the beginning. So these are the kind of things I think he would think about. Now, ultimately, they bent the knee, and what he said was, bend the knee and I'll treat you well. So he's not going to go back on that, but he's also not going to fully be able to count on them as like hardcore loyalists because, A, he understands that they have a lot to protect. They have a lot of wealth that they are at stake to lose, that they, they could lose if they play it wrong. So he knows that they're always going to put that first. Even though he's their king, he can destroy them. He knows that's the thing that matters to them most is their own wealth and power, which of course it matters to them most. So he's not, he's, he's neither foolish, naive, or overly trusting about this, I think. I mean, Aegon doesn't come off as someone that would be overly swayed by such things. On the other hand, there is examples that we're going to get to of him being overconfident. As much as he projected extreme confidence because he really was that great in terms of dominance and power and having Balerion. There's some signs that it maybe it went a little bit to his head. Maybe he thought, okay, I've proved my point. No one's going to stand up to me now. Who would possibly fight me now? I've dominated everyone and conquered almost the entire continent. Well, there were some, but he may have taken some of their surrender for granted, which we're going to be seeing here throughout the rest of this episode. So when the high towers didn't go hard for the gardeners, why would Aegon expect them to go hard for him? So he knows what he has. He was like, okay, I can count on them to run this city. I can count on them to send me taxes. But if it comes down to a big war, I don't think I can count on them. And he'd be right about that. <laughs> uh, and the, the loyalty of Old Town is going to become an ongoing back and forth, not just for Aegon. It's not really going to be a problem for Aegon. But for future Targaryen kings... There's going to be a lot of work put in to make sure Old Town is in the fold. And then eventually, we're, it'll be too much in the fold <laughs> when they marry into House Targaryen. But that's quite a ways away still. That ball started rolling when, it, when Old Town surrendered without a fight, I think. The positioning itself as a, as, a, as a piece of power that you can't quite grab onto. If you grab it too tightly, it will be gone. If you don't hold onto it tightly, it may, go to some, may help somebody else or help one of your enemies. And uh, I think marrying into them was holding it too tightly, <laughs> quite hard, quite possibly. <laughs> Still, he was uh, ultimately pleased that I think that he didn't have to destroy them or do any severe damage or unleash Balerion. It's a best case scenario for the most part. The High Septon taking his side, effectively taking his side, was a massive windfall. Here's how it went after that. Quote. Three days later in the Starry Sept, His High Holiness himself anointed Aegon with the seven oils, placed a crown upon his head, and proclaimed him Aegon of House Targaryen, the first of his name, King of the Andals, the Rhoynar, and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms, and Protector of the Realm. Seven Kingdoms was the style used, though Dorne had not submitted, nor would it, for more than a century to come. 
Only a handful of lords had been present for Aegon's first coronation at the mouth of the Blackwater, but hundreds were on hand to witness his second, and tens of thousands cheered him afterward in the streets of Old Town as he rode through the city on Balerion's back. This is the same group of lords that had followed him to confront King Torin, the ones that had submitted after the Field of Fire with a few river lords mixed in from prior to that. And then a few other reach lords who probably weren't on the Field of Fire who decided it was finally time to submit. Better now than later. The longer they waited, the worse it would get. But picture Balerion going through the streets. We've got art of this. It's pretty incredible. Wowing the crowds. And as it says, the crowds... Well, it would be enormous. Hundreds of people at the coronation itself and then thousands, tens of thousands afterwards. And this picture it. It's the spectacle. The spectacle. The spectacle of a dragon is worth it alone. Like if I lived in that world and there's a chance to see Balerion, I would totally go do it. You know, it's just a just a parade scenario. Obviously, I wouldn't go to the field of fire. <laughs> I wouldn't go to the battlefield. But if I knew it was just, you know, hanging out. Of course I would go. And I think most of you would too. You'd want to see what that thing looked like. And you would see that the rumors were real. It wasn't exaggerated. And holy crap, that dragon really is as big as they say. I can understand why people bent the knee. I can understand how the field of fire was so one-sided. I can understand why Heron Hall was burnt. And all these people will remember it. And it's not just the dragon, the sighting of the dragon. It's a momentous day in the history of Westeros. The biggest like governmental shift, the biggest cultural shift since like the pact or the long night in a single day. I mean, the Andals was a big different, big thing, but that was a very gradual thing. You know, the Andals coming was a more than a thousand years of waves and slow change. Whereas this was a single day or a few days or however you want to frame it. It, it doesn't really compare to a, a gradual migration. So I think I, I frame it more like that, like the pact or the long night, something like that. So what, what were the, what was the average? What was like the common view of this? Like, were people fleeing the city in advance of Aegon's arrival or were they were they worried? What were the rumor? What was the rumor mill like? I think eventually people figured out that, oh, that he's not coming to attack. And that's why the crowds were so big. So clearly people weren't that scared. But I, but I, I feel like for a while before people knew there was going to be a surrender, maybe. I don't know if the common folk knew that Manfred and the High Septon were planning on opening the doors because and we can say that because they were probably waiting to make sure it would happen they again they hadn't fully committed to surrender <laughs> or else they would have told him ahead of time so there would have been quite a lot of consternation or like what's going to happen is he going to come and destroy us like he destroyed Harrenhal once the fear passed I and mean, the people saw okay well he's not doing that and the coronation happens then i think that enables so many people to show up and watch him in the streets and then talk about that for literally generations. People who saw Balerion that day, they were there for the coronation for one of the biggest days in the history of Westeros, whether they were in that room when he, he was crowned or just saw him on the streets afterwards. That's something you tell your kids, your kids tell those kids, tell their kids. They were there for that. I mean, it would be like being there for, I don't know, like the U S is this roughly similar age to the, 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 the Iron Thrones age. It's a little younger, but if you were there for the Declaration of Independence or had, and had, during the uh, the Revolutionary War and lived through that, that would be pretty huge. Your family would be proud of having had a, 
a representative there during that time or whatever. If you're not from America, obviously you can have a probably a similar event you can imagine in your country's history that's similarly momentous. It's not as fantastic, but you know George Washington being coronated as the first president. You know, yeah. Yeah, it's very similar. Like you were establishing a new system. Like he's the first president of, you know, like that's not as powerful as a king, but it's the first of a new system of government. The first to sit the Iron Throne, the first to rule the entire country. That's that's a huge deal. Yeah, well, not the entire country, but most of it. <laughs> most of it. Still a new political designation, a new level of authority that hadn't existed before. It's, it's very significant. And that makes it uh, memorable and important to be a part of, even if you're just in the crowd. You know, like you could just even if you're in the crowd for game seven of a memorable sports series, like that's you tell your kids about that probably if they gave a crap about that sport. <laughs> but you know, like just being just being there, being witnessed really does mean something, right? It's, it's, I was there, I saw it. Yeah, you know, I think eyes. of one, I would probably tell folks, I, I guess it's, you know. We were there when George read uh, Forsaken. That's a good one for us. Actually, yeah, yeah. Case, we don't have it's any. Our game seven of the sports. That, that was our game seven. Yeah, <laughs> the Forsaken uh, chapter. I don't know. Right. You say game seven, I'm like, I don't know what sport <laughs> you're talking about. Lots of sports. Oh, not, okay. Not football, not soccer, but yeah, oh, basketball, okay. hockey. Yeah. Or we went. We went to the premiere of House of the Dragon at George's Theater too. That's that's not quite as is the forsaken chapter but yeah i don't think i i don't know that that would necessarily be told to children but i would tell them the other ones yeah know? you're right we also don't have any children to tell them to but <laughs> i told the cats <laughs> we told yeah we told our cats yes they're very proud of us <laughs> yeah and you mentioned sean is this if someone had wanted to like assassinate Aegon, there were chances there were not just here but there were chances yeah it's this and and other chances for the other for the queens too. Yeah, being pretty through the streets like this, I wonder what kind of security there was. How confident was Aegon? You know, how many? How big were the crowds? You know, the, that that art we showed. You know, one person in that crowd with a crossbow, one guard who didn't like this new thing, right? But I can also imagine everyone being in such awe. Like you know, I, I went through a little bit of like, what if it did? What if someone did? You know, some some militant some faith of the seven some person who is still loyal to whatever took it on themselves you know without even any kind of organization or or, or some plotting that might also could have happened but it's just one person decided i'm going to be the one to kill the dragon lord who shot him with a crossbow what happens is Balerion unleashed the fire does vicinia come in from well, the that's grassy why knoll I think they wouldn't do it <laughs> see that's why i, I know from a grassy knoll that's hilarious but no that's why i think they wouldn't do it sean is that if you shoot Balerion one even if you manage to kill him he probably unleashes fire and devastation to everyone around you and if you're doing this you're probably doing it because you're trying to stop also maybe it's not that easy to get a crossbow or be a good shot or <laughs> you might have had yeah you might have had Manfred Hightower or the High Septon or both and or the Warrior Sun just very wary of exactly such a thing happening and being watchful for it. They might be like, Yeah, we can't allow one of one of the zealots to just like take a shot at Aegon. They probably won't even hit him, but what will he do to our city if if he blames that on us? What if he like finds a reason to put put that on us? They're very they, they obviously were taking a lot of caution to avoid the destruction of their cities. <laughs> they couldn't necessarily stop all the crazies, but they might be aware of it and that would help. And, you know, for what it's worth in, you know, relatively modern times, 
took a lot of presidents before someone killed John F. Kennedy. You know what I mean? Lots of presidents were paraded through the streets and any person with a gun could have just walked up and shot him. And finally someone did. Same thing Abraham Lincoln, I guess. True. Even after Several. Abraham Lincoln, they, they didn't stop yeah, going out in public after that, you know? So Ronald Reagan got shot. Yeah, there, there's been a lot of presidents that have been shot. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and a crossbow, it's hard to kill someone with a crossbow. I mean, Aegon was probably wearing his armor yeah, while yeah. walking, going through the crowds, you know? <laughs> So yeah, you got to have a really good shot. Uh, yeah, anyway, so it's it, it's a lot to consider there. And in terms of number of eyes on it, we talked about how important it was for all those Northerners. We talked about why maybe why Torin brought so many of his armies so they would be witnesses. Either they would be there to help him fight or they would serve as witnesses afterwards. Either way, it worked. It's, it's a good thing for him. But consider how many witnesses this would be compared to that. Way more, way, 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 way more. Because you got the armies there too. They've already seen it. But now you've got this entire population of Old Town, plus all the people that came from the outskirts of the city who, just for the spectacle, to see the coronation, the extra lords who weren't there before, and all the people they brought with them. So many witnesses. I don't think there's, this is maybe one of the largest crowds that's ever gathered in the entire history of Westeros. You know, not just that, but a crowd this size gathered at, I don't know, Winterfell or something, word won't spread as far and as fast. Old Town is a center for commerce and that's education true. and et cetera, et cetera. So it's just more people that live around there in general. Yeah. More people means more stories, more traveling. Like everyone in the Citadel saw this and Al teaches everyone else who comes from this, through the Citadel from now on. And those people go out to other places to spread their, spread their knowledge and all the merchants and everything. So, yeah. That's a fantastic point. The, the, the most capable historians would be there to record the moment, like lots of them. There's probably more accounts of this in the Citadel than there are of a lot of other things that wouldn't have taken place right in front of them. <laughs> capable and connected. Yeah, yeah. Same thing with the sept. Everyone that comes to the sept to train or to worship then goes back to their homes in other lands, brings mm. this story with him. Yes, yes. Yeah. So uh, and Aegon was probably aware of that, or if he wasn't, people would have made him aware of that. It's like, hey, yeah. hey, King, look at the power of spreading word here. And so this is when, speaking of, this is when conversations of, of a new capital started to come up. Now, Aegon had already decided. It seems like very likely he had already decided on King's Landing. And for multiple reasons, the biggest of which he was already collecting swords for his throne. He, I don't, he wasn't going to build his throne somewhere other than his capital, <laughs> right? That doesn't make any sense. Like, oh yeah, my capital's here, but my throne is hundreds of miles away. No, of course not. The capital and the throne are going to be in the same spot. So the fact that he's been sending swords to this place all along, ever since the first battle, meant that he had already decided. He just hadn't told people or hadn't told many people or word wasn't out. You know, it wasn't important for him to spread that word. Uh, and he may have had a reason for that. He may not have wanted people to know that. He may have wanted them to court their city and do things for him. And I mean, he may have liked that process. There may have been value to him for that. Because in, in doing so, they may have given him a good accounting of all the features of the city so that it could be, you know, like a presentation, like a, like a, 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 PowerPoint presentation on all why Old Town should be the capital. It's like, I want them to make this presentation so that they tell me everything there is to know, even though I have no intention of choosing it. I still want to know everything about the city, things that they might have otherwise kept from me. <laughs> Factors and tax revenues and things like that. They might have kept hidden if I Defensive were. capabilities. Yeah, defensive capability. Sure, sure. Number of troops, just count. Yeah, how many spears and bows and things do you have? Those, like... Those things might have been told anyway, but if they're, it's different from then he's forcing you to tell versus you're in a position where you're pitching it to him, 
<laughs> so you're more likely to exaggerate than hold back in, in one, in one scenario, scenario versus the other. And these are the kind of power games that Aegon would, would maybe and probably be aware of. It's like, well, it's all about how you frame it. If I present myself, are you selling this to me or am I demanding it of you? If you're selling it to me, then I'm going to get a different kind of answer than if I'm demanding it from you. Uh, so he knew all along that King's Landing was going to be the site. Now, what we can only guess at is why he waited. I just gave you one possible reason, but that's just a pure guesswork. And the other would be, well, what was he, what were they doing to guess at this? And why did he wait for now? And what did people, what were people's reactions to him declaring King's Landing? Were there immediate like investment in the new city where like the high towers and the Lannisters immediately like rushing to invest in shops and build houses and mansions there or there's there'd be business opportunities like crazy this is the kind of thing that george doesn't write about a lot but it had to have been happening and it would be real interesting like a, a, a big new city being built in a really important location right next to the new capital where all sorts of trade and opportunity is clearly going to be happening how did the realm react to this who got their finger into that pie who ignored it who missed the opportunity I mean, we don't hear today about like the Lannisters having like big amounts of property in King's Landing or the High Tower. So, quite possibly, they were not allowed to do much, or they were they didn't take the opportunity, or I don't know. But this is a kind of a more than a gray area. <laughs> it's a dark gray area. I really, I really have very little idea. But but it had to be happening. These are the kind of things that happen, whether we whether it gets written about or not. Economic development rich people trying to get richer <laughs> you know that's that always, that's always happening 24 7 the way the world works even when it's a fantasy world so the second real coronation uh, if we go back to that briefly it's the change in how the dates are reckoned so whenever we look at dates for a while there before fire and blood and and before the world of ice and fire there was a little discrepancy not a discrepancy but confusion as to wait wait did the conquest start when the conquest started or when it ended <laughs> like when do you start because that's a, like a more like a year when when is year one start <laughs> when everyone bent the knee the first time the second time or so yes the second time is the answer this is when the rain begins officially like the calendar is marked from this point so that makes it more official than the first kneeling and that makes more sense too it's the the high septon and the gods and way more all the lords whereas before it was just his own people hardly anyone witnessed so it makes sense to to have a big show a big make a big spectacle of it all and let's look at what he called himself right king of westeros not just that he was king of the andals the roinar and the first men okay so he had pretty much subjugated the andals and the first men mostly but he hadn't a sing I don't know that a single Roinar had bent the knee at this point. <laughs> they all lived in Dorne other than a few random people that, you know, live elsewhere. But so maybe a few technically had bent the knee, but very few, certainly not any large group. That's a very important distinction. He was claiming this is where I'm talking about the overconfidence and maybe even a little arrogance. He's claiming dominion over people he had not only not conquered, he hadn't even like had FaceTime with or diplomacy with yet. He's called himself Lord of the Iron Isles and of the Three Sisters and of Dorne, who haven't bent the knee at all. And Rhaenys was sent to go talk to them, but it's unclear whether she had actually had a meeting with anyone yet by this point. So Aegon may have been calling himself 
King of Dorne or Lord of the Roinar and all these different titles without a single Dornish representative having said a word about it yet, which is like, yeah, that's that, you're trying not to insult people. That's pretty insulting. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'm I'm your king now, and I haven't even set foot in your country. In his defense. He didn't know that they weren't bending the knee either, right? It's not like he knew they were standing up to him and he was disregarding it. Yeah, he kind of expected and, them to. I mean, yeah. we just talked about he showed up at Old Town and their doors were open. Like, he, the precedent was established. He won battle after battle. He proved his point. How can anyone beat me? The fact that it's so hard to beat me means people are preemptively surrendering. It's a reason why, you know, if you're winning the Super Bowl 47 to 12 or whatever, and the reporter comes up in the sideline and there's still seven minutes in the game, but you're like, yeah, we won the Super Bowl. You know, it's 47 12. It's a reasonable <laughs> thing to think, you know, yeah, like sure, 47 0. You come back, this- I guess, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah crazy so- things can happen, but it's reasonable for him to not expect the crazy thing, you know. So. Yeah. So the point is, though, maybe it wasn't crazy. Maybe it shouldn't. Maybe it's not crazy for Dorn to give up or, or to not submit. I'm not sure uh, that it's debatable. With hindsight, it seems to be the case. You know? Yeah, because clearly they didn't. He didn't beat them. They didn't. They're not going to submit for 190 more years and it won't be due to violence. So he clearly miscalculated there, even if it wasn't crazy. He was he was wrong. He was either he was wrong, but maybe not crazy. <laughs> so there is also a little more to be said about it too. Like one of the other titles he's taken is the shield of his people, protector of the realm. Well, there's still fighting going on and there's still places where that are in chaos that he's not going to address for quite a while. It's just like, you call yourself protector of the realm while the realm is tearing a portion of the realm is tearing itself apart and you're not lifting a finger to do anything about it for a while. To be fair, again, he's got a lot to do. <laughs> he can't, you know, he can't be everywhere at once. So yeah, it's, you know, making apologies for a conqueror is a weird position to be in, but it's like Westeros is, did become a better place to live after. So <laughs> I think, I think it seems that way. So it's also like, well, yeah, it's not simple. It is, the moral, the morality here is, is it's hard to put real world morality into it. Uh, Cause it is, even if it is, even if you think of it as a real world, this values and technology and history is also different. Also, screw that portion of the realm. <laughs> <laughs> I hate sand. <laughs> well, I, no, I meant the Iron Islands. Okay, I hate right? yeah. salt. <laughs> <laughs> I hate the concept of salt wives. How about that? <laughs> okay, that, yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> so let's talk about the unbowed. Here's a very brief quote to describe what we mean. Though the wars of conquest were said to have ended when Aegon was crowned and anointed by the High Septon and the Starry Sept of Old Town, not all of Westeros had yet submitted to his rule. So Aegon had work to do still, despite so many acclaiming him as their king, despite all those witnesses spreading the word, which he presumably and logically expected to solidify his rule even more. It wasn't enough. There were holdouts, like very few of the people who bent the knee at Old Town went to Dorne to tell the story. Very few witnesses, or the, or if they did, it didn't move them over much. And there would be microcosms of this story. We've talked about it a few times with regard to the Starks, but there would have to be other versions of this on a smaller scale in the other regions too. There would be maybe a few in the Vale that, or in the West, or maybe even in the Stormlands who were like, I i'm hesitant to accept this new order of things it's been this way for so long and they're not necessarily up in arms but they they're holding out they're stubborn they're refusing to do a few things and 
there would be there would need to be FaceTime between some of these former kings and their still vassals who are no longer subject to a king, but to a high lord. And a lot of these little things would have to take place. And this is the kind of thing I'm thinking of when I'm thinking Aegon can't just rush off to Dorne or the Iron Islands. There's maybe some of these smaller scale things that don't make the history books because it never came to blood. The negotiations were tedious, but they did end up working out. So like, it's not very historical, (laughs) but it's something that we can definitely read between the lines as likely happened. And I like to point these things out because, well, it's realistic. We're trying to fill out the world as much as possible, trying to make it feel realistic and breathable and breathing. And, and well, if you like role-playing campaigns, things like that, you try to just over turn over every stone, look under every, look behind every door and see, you know, what would be there and what, realistic elements would take place? What are things that humans would do no matter what? You know, what are some stimuli that we can reliably predict uh, would be the responses for? So yes, the three sisters, the Iron Islands and Dorne were the three big holdouts. Uh, But I'd like to guess that there were some more smaller scale ones. So two groups of islands, right? And the farthest kingdom to the south. And I think that's important because this geography plays a role here in both they're more unique, they're most cult, they're more culturally distinct. Some of them have different, well, one of them has a different religion and Dorne is culturally different. They treat women differently. They treat, they have, there's different racial groups. Uh, yeah, besides the geography and the separation of things like mountains and deserts that enforce certain cultural differences and keep people from meeting and, and talking and, and growing more similar over time. The three sisters sort of had a different religion too, right? Weren't they at least sort of worshiping the old gods? I mean, no, not really. I mean, yes and no. Like they have their older gods that are different than any other old gods. They worship the Lord of the Waves and the Lord of the Skies, which is sort of like oh, the drowned okay. god and the storm god. And a lot of the there's similarities between those. But that but that religion is gone. Whereas not well almost gone. Whereas the Iron Islands clearly still worship the drowned god and and, and fear the storm god. So they're they're mostly worshippers of the seven. There, they have knighthood and and all that stuff. They're they're mostly they're similar to okay. the Vale than that because the Vale is what's r- ruled them for most of that time. But they do have more north in them than anywhere else in the Vale, I would guess, because just not just because of proximity, but because of that cultural separation, that distinct microcosm that they are, and just frequent trade and uh, with the north. And people Northerners probably lived there too at some at some point, off and on. So that's important to note the actual distinct differences cultural significance, this and that here and there, all that. Yeah. There's a lot of differences and those things mean a lot. Like that's the, because think of it this way. If a King comes in and demands you surrender and he has all the same values as you, it's a lot easier to bend the knee, especially when he's also stronger than you, but that's not the case for the iron islands, right? He doesn't have your values. He's in fact going to stop your values. He's going to tell you, no, you can't live this way anymore. Whereas the rest of Westeros, for the most part, gets to go on living the way they were before. This, the, the king in the north is the high lord in the north, but he's, he's he still gets to worship the same gods, eats the same foods, does goes about his business the same way. The Ironborn are going to be told to change a lot about how they live. It's a cultural upheaval as well as a authoritative upheaval. Finally. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> be clear. Yeah. For Dorne, it's similar. It's not a religious upheaval. They worship the seven, so they're not being told to change that. But it is still 
a place that values their independence more. Even under the Prince of Dorne, they're less beholden to their own ruler than, say, the high towers were to the gardeners, right? There's just less, there already was less authority held by the Martells. They had, hadn't ruled for as long. Dorne wasn't united nearly as recently as the other regions. So there wasn't a long history of, oh, well, we've always followed the Martells. No, that only been the case for hundreds of years, not thousands. And there were some houses that kind of like how there are even houses now that don't like the Tyrells being in charge. There are houses that in this time, we're still kind of like, I don't know about those Martells. <laughs> you know, I don't think they deserve to be on top, especially people like the Ironwoods and a few others who were similarly elite amongst other Dornish. They were also, correct me if I'm wrong, but smaller populations that are more spread out. Yes. They're not as streamlined and connected from city to city, from, you know, it's not as regimented a hierarchy leading up to the Martells. The Martells probably barely know or care what most of the people in Dorne are doing. They're technically in charge, but they don't have some lord going out. You know, there's not as much interaction or connectivity between them, right? Yes. And that's probably kind of true for the North, too, more so than the Reach, right? Yeah. For example. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Okay, let's uh, take a little break here, and we'll come back and talk about the Iron Islands first and make our way over to Dorne. We probably won't have time for the three sisters, but all these three of these situations begin now or have started a little while ago and last into the reign of Aegon. So none of these things are resolved quickly, especially Dorne. So it will be continuing forward with these threads until they're complete. That said, after this episode, we are taking a fire and blood break, not a episode break, but we will return to fire and blood content right at the end of the year or right before the end of the year we're working on the schedule right now it's a little bit subject to change but as of now the week before the end of the year is going to be when we get back to fire and blood most likely in the meantime we'll be putting out more of our regular style episodes where y'all vote on a selection of topics that we present and they can be pretty much any topic from all over the fandom and it, and also we're going to be doing an episode on catching ourselves up on what's been going on with the TV shows. Uh, just just a kind of roundup of what's been a while since we talked about that and want to get ourselves caught up and stay up to date on that. All right. I also want to bring up uh, something that is a little outside of Game of Thrones. You know, it's hard to find good fantasy shows on TV. There are a lot of them, you know, start off good and kind of decline. <laughs> So it's not just fantasy shows, but a lot of TV shows go that way. It's more common for a show to start off well and get worse than the other way around, but it does happen. And sometimes it goes both ways. Sometimes it improves and then it goes back down. Who knows? All shows are different. There is no one size fits all for the history of television quality, right? One show that both falls into the fantasy bucket and also has improved from its first season, which is a, as I said, a breath of fresh air. It's kind of rare that that happens. Just the Wheel of Time. I'm a fan of the Wheel of Time series. I've read the books a long time ago, so long ago that when watching the TV show, I would kind of forgot some things every once in a while. I was surprised by things I should have known. I was like, oh yeah, I knew that. I should have known that from the book. But I had forgotten because it's been so long. So I do recommend the Wheel of Time TV show. You can get it on Amazon Prime. And season two was way better than season one. It was a huge improvement. They focused more on characters. They focused more on conflict events of the heart uh, rather than 
Well, chasing things around and monsters and battles, which can be fun, but it's not as fun as as character conflict and, and character driven stuff. To be fair, that's also a reflection of the books. The first book was kind of like that, and the second book was just better. So <laughs> it makes sense the TV show would be like that. But if you're one of those people that gave Wheel of Time a chance, didn't really like it, give, maybe give it a second chance. You can find, again, you might be worth getting on Prime if you don't have it. So you can sign up for Prime on our website. And there's a lot of other benefits to Prime as well besides that. So let us know uh, if you enjoyed Wheel of Time or if you come back to it. You know, I like to mention other good fantasy shows that are out there, other good fantasy books from time to time. And since this one's currently in the zeitgeist and will be back for at least one more season, hopefully more, if the quality uptick continues, then it's a, a, a nice thing to have uh, for your in your entertainment uh, shelf you know the you. wheel yeah. of time just keeps on turning <laughs> wheel of the time keeps on turning mm -hmm. yeah i don't know i can't remember if you said it but you can sign up for prime like with the history of westeros discount right is that yeah the well the there's not a prime discount but you get all these extra benefits one of which is this and you we would get you know we do get uh a cut of any, any sign up of course but also you can use your you also get a, a one free twitch subscription which some of y'all could use to watch our Twitch streams and, and subscribe there because we do our Crusader Kings for a Song of Ice and Fire stream almost every Friday at 6 p.m. So shout out to that as well. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Um, yeah, I, I'm. it's very disappointing seeing the, the from like five, six years ago, we had a golden age of fantasy TV almost. And already it feels like that was much longer ago, <laughs> you know, with Game of Thrones season eight being a downer for a lot of us. And some of these other shows that have come out since like The Witcher started off great and it really so super super disappointed in that how that went and uh yeah mixed emotions around the rings of power i wouldn't call that too mixed it was pretty bad but <laughs> but i still watched it i still watched it. i watched it as soon as yeah, it came out same. every week so i can't say that i didn't enjoy it but i was like a lot of times i was like crinkling my face like what like, what oh, i don't do that <laughs> don't don't take the plot in that direction <laughs> if you want to crinkle your face too that's also an amazon <laughs> show right <laughs> Amazon's got a lot of yeah, outside fantasies. There's a lot of Amazon has a lot. There's a lot of great shows on yeah, there. Yeah, Vikings and yeah, we'll 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 come back and mention a few others in future weeks because uh, we've spent enough time on it today. But yeah, like I, I like to to mention what's good that's out there uh, since it's our wheel. It's in our wheelhouse, right? Shout out to Kenny from the chat for sending a super chat dancing sticker. Appreciate that dancing. Maybe that's for you, Sean. Dancing, My kind of sticker. Dancing sticker for dancing, Sean. Yeah. All right. Back to. The Iron Islands. That's right. Let's talk about them. This is, so like I said, we're not going to cover the entire scenario with the Iron Islands. This is just what's been happening while Aegon's conquering elsewhere, while after Heron's fall. Here's Theon's first chapter, which of course is a Clash of Kings. Quote, The drowned god had made them to reeve and rape, to carve out kingdoms and write their names in fire and blood and song. Aegon the dragon had destroyed the old way when he burned Black Heron, gave Heron's kingdom back to the weakling rivermen and reduced the Iron Islands to an insignificant backwater of much greater realm. Yet, the old red tales were still told around the driftwood fires and smoky hearths all across the islands, even behind the high stones of Pike. Theon's father numbered among his titles the style of Lord Reaper, and the Greyjoy words boasted that we do not sow. It had been to bring back the old way more than for the empty vanity of a crown that Lord Balon had staged his great rebellion. 
reduced, he says. So let's like reduce them to that. They kind of already were that. But at the time, for most of their history, it happened to be a blip in history that they were perhaps the most powerful kingdom at the time of Aegon's conquest. But for most of their existence, they were not. Going back really far, they were very significant because they were kind of unstoppable. They attacked wherever they wanted to, and very few people could stop them. So they sort of did have uh, their run of the Western shores, and no one could really do anything about it. But that had fallen off long before what Theon is talking about here. So they had kind of made a resurgence and then fallen off again once they were beaten. So like a lot of Ironborn, even ones who weren't fully raised on the Iron Islands, they have misconceptions about the greatness of their own people. They, they kind of lie to themselves, kind of exaggerate their own glory uh, to make themselves feel better or to be proud. I don't know why, but I mean, people do that. It's not strange to think of people pumping up their own culture and, and ignoring the, the bad parts, which is pretty hard to do with the Ironborn to ignore the bad parts. <laughs> you pretty much have to, you pretty much have to look at the bad parts as good parts. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, you just don't think that they're bad. Yeah. yeah you're, they think that's good. Yeah. So you don't think it's bad until someone else is doing it to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it, they, what's pro the problem here is they, they descended into chaos because they didn't have a leader anymore. Yes. Like a lot of these countries, right. <laughs> they lost their leaders but Aegon appointed someone else to take over immediately, or they took over immediately. Like, Orish Baratheon took over the Stormlands right away. The Tyrells were given control of the Reach right away, like days after the Field of Fire. Immediately after Hall was burned, Edmund Tully was given the Riverlands. Like, that was, like, the same day, or the 24 hours later or something. The Iron Isles, though, Heron taken out, all his sons taken out. Eh, I'll come back to that later. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> the Iron Isles is tearing itself apart while Aegon is conquering the rest of the continent, busy with the Field of Fire, busy with getting crowned in Old Town, busy declaring himself king of places like the Iron Islands that he's not really being a king of. Because how can you call yourself protector of the realm when you're allowing the state of affairs to happen? And he let it, allowed it to happen for quite a while. To be fair, he may have thought it would take a lot to stop. And that requires a lot of gathering of military power and getting it all together and sailing it over there, and which is what happened eventually. But we're not covering that today because it, like I said, took a while. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't even within a year. You know, I didn't. There's another angle I didn't think of till just now. But when you said, "How can you call yourself protector of the realm?" Da da da. da. If he had, say, he had named someone to be in charge of the Iron Islands, and then that person took a navy and attacked. The West, yeah, or attacked. Where like uh, you see it now, it would be kind of under Aegon that this is happening. It, whereas if he doesn't name someone and they war against each other, they're not warring against someone else. Mm -hmm. He's he's almost is protecting the realm by by Allow, yes. getting them to it. Yeah, I totally agree. He, he might have is might have been planned. He may I, I say he just let them be, but that may have been intentional. You might be right. That might have been the ex part of the plan like yeah it's the best thing to do is let them weaken themselves and then i'll come in then we'll bring the heavy hand down make them stop after they've gone at it for a while but if we attack them now they may unite against the common foe us <laughs> the one that's trying to come and take their religion away to take the old way away that's a, you can you can picture it like they're coming to take the old way away well it's all unite to stop that like that that is one of the few things that might get them to unite is someone coming to take their their gods away or their their way of life which 
was true. He was going to come do that. <laughs> or again, what I'm saying is if they were united, even if they accepted Aegon as a ruler, they still under their union might have gone after one of the other seven kingdoms. Yeah, right? that's true. Yes. And now it's so rather than Aegon stopping them from fighting each other, Aegon's got to stop them from fighting one of the other kingdoms that he's already got on his side. That's expecting this from, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, he, that's true. They're distracted with each other and not attacking the rest of the seven kingdoms, which is, his way of protecting the rest of the seven kingdoms. Yeah. Know? So uh, Theon does have a point though. So even though he's kind of exaggerating and gets some of the details a little mixed up and maybe his chronology is a little bit off, he's still mostly right. Like it did, it, it isn't maybe blamed on Aegon. It's fine to do it if you want to. I don't think it matters. Most of the regions under the Iron Throne, life improved there. But arguably the, the Iron Islands is... is, is separate is not under that it depends on who you are i think like the fishermen of the iron islands who i i, I would care about them more anyway because they're you know innocents for the most part their lives may have gotten better i'm not sure but it definitely got worse for the the people who follow the old way which wah, good you know good for the it's good that they don't get to do that yeah nina writes that it's just the problem with the ironborn system it's incompatible <laughs> with submitting to a king and being part of a greater realm. Their system is kill everyone who's not us. Everyone else is our wheat. We do not sow. We reap a harvest of humans. We take your harvest. You do the work for us. You can't have, that doesn't, that's not compatible. That's not a neighborly attitude. It has to change for them to fit. So yeah, so which is why it has to be approached differently, which is why it maybe has to be approached with a little more caution and or with a lot more strength to make sure whatever you force them to do, they've got to be, they have to do it. Like the force is strong enough to compel them. Because you're talking about zealots, not you're talking about brave warriors, you're talking about zealots here. The drowned god is going to play a role here, uh, as we'll see. And yeah, like you can't just... And that's an important distinction, too, when I'm talking about the fishermen versus the reavers. Like, the problem isn't the ironborn, necessarily. It's the old way. The old way is the problem. Like, the old way isn't in their DNA. It is in their cultural DNA because it's been around for so long. But it's not, like, literally in their bodies, <laughs> you know? Like, that's a thing that's, like, a, a real-world way that racism is thrown around is people act like the behavior of a group is some sort of like an inborn quality rather than a, a cultural behavior or a thing that's taught or, or an effect of being downtrodden or spoiled or anywhere in between. But a fantasy world gives us an exception, potential exception, the kind of thing that people say in the real world when they want to, when they're being ridiculous, but they actually believe it. Like, in other words, like calling another race, like the devil or calling another culture, the devil, like, no, they've got the devil in them. Now here, this might actually be true. <laughs> like in a fantasy world that kind of racism actually might fly because the ironborn might actually have deep ones <laughs> dna in them <laughs> right so i was like because if that's the true then okay fine sink the whole island sink just get rid of them all just that's fine okay we have to there's no there's no there's no rehabilitating the old ones <laughs> but you know there is a uh maybe an argument too that it's just this that it is a systemic thing mm -hmm. that since yeah. the iron islands have limited resources they don't have the option of fields of wheat, right? So yeah, possibly you could argue that, you know, attacking, pillaging other areas is uh, 
a natural thing to occur. Uh, I still don't think it justifies it, but we just saw, we've seen it in the real world, right? Like yeah. just part of the reason the Vikings came down to England and Europe or whatever, they just they wanted better land. didn't have yeah. enough food for all the people up there. They needed more land to, for farms. It's not so much that they wanted to go conquer and pillage. They just needed more land to not starve. And there were other people on that land already. So they conquered and pillaged, but yeah. Well, some of them did. Some of them wanted to conquer and pillage, but yeah <laughs> so yeah you're right like there's a it's, it's it, again we don't want to you can't put them all into a single bucket there's a lot of different types of people involved here some that just wanted to rape and pillage and there's no rehabilitating that but some of them were would be open to making a life a different way like asha we even a gray joy like asha's like why are we doing this let's just go buy a load of goods and go to the other side of the world, trade that and come back and come back with their goods and we'll make a ton. Like a lot of Ironborn could do that instead of raping and pillaging. And, and there's even arguably more money in the trade. And, and Less it, yes, danger. and yeah. yeah, or at least similar danger. Like traveling all the way to the other side of the world is probably pretty dangerous. But it's but that shouldn't be a problem if you're willing to to make a living a dangerous way with the axe and sword. And then what? Then, yeah, this is a different sort of danger. So yeah, I do see a path forward for the Ironborn that isn't yeah, raping and pillaging. And, and so did Asha. She sees that as well. Like it's hard to convince her countrymen of that, but us readers can see that and be like, yeah, that, I, I mean, yeah, I think that makes sense. There's like, she pointed out how there's large parts of the North that no one lives that have food. Like people could live there. <laughs> like you, you could build farms and, and hovels here. There's good hunting grounds here. There's good fishing here. There's good trees for, yeah. But yeah, so there is with the right vision and, and right peace and, and sense of unity, you could have that. Some those things did not happen under Aegon or anyone. <laughs> but yeah, don't blame Aegon. <laughs> things like that did happen elsewhere in the realm. But yeah, at no point has even under Jaehaerys when building was at its peak. There's never been a lot of like public works projects or building projects. It's always been, you know, Jaehaerys was like one of the very few exceptions. And yeah, there is just not a lot of that. So, yeah, so the Iron Islands, you can't really blame, even though Aegon, it's sort of his job as protector of the realm to come in and stop them from killing each other and or to stop them from killing their neighbors. The fact that they went at each other so hard isn't his fault, right? It, it, it probably would have happened in some degree anyway. So I'm not sure he's showing a disdain for them rather than just making them a low priority slash understanding how hard this job is going to be to... to fix the Iron Islands or to keep them in line. So uh, there's a lot of different factors to consider here. Now, and that's not the first time this is going to happen either. Consider what, uh, 210, 20 years later, when Dagon Greyjoy emerges and just starts attacking the West and the North and doing his thing and Blood Raven's a little too concerned about the possibility of another Blackfire invasion to send the ships over there. And it's the same thing. It's kind of like he ignores the problem. Well, doesn't ignore the problem. He considers it a low pri a priority for a while and maybe hopes it takes care of itself and never does. And he has to go over and deal with it. Now, I don't think Aegon expected this to take care of itself entirely, but it's similar in that he, may he had to maybe rethink his priorities eventually because this kept going. One reason he might have not thought this would happen, he may have been surprised at how much the Iron Isles tore itself apart. Well, because, well, because they aren't supposed to do that. They have that religious prohibition. We'll come back to that in a minute, but let's not forget, 
the old way says ironborn are not supposed to fight ironborn it's 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 like religious cultural thing that you're supposed to turn your violence outward on other people's like everyone else is our wheat not each other obviously like every cultural taboo across a huge amount of time <laughs> it gets broken but this is perhaps one of the most spectacular long extended times of of that happening of it being broken for quite a while so yeah the ruling dynasty just up and vanished huge power vacuum structural and power uh there's no dynasty and no like like the the horror dynasty had kind of started ignoring the iron isles anyway they were more focused on their land-based projects on Hall and ruling the riverland so they'd already kind of been turned into a backwater that's something theon forgets when he's talking about turning it into a backwater your own king had started doing that <laughs> to it <laughs> just got worse when that king died and so, that, so this is, of course, in a power vacuum, there's going to be people that step forward to try to fill that vacuum. For example, there were claims to be made, and here's the first one, quote. House Horror had ruled the Iron Men for long centuries, only to be extinguished in a single night when Aegon unleashed Balerion's fires on Harrenhal. Though Harren the Black and his sons perished in those flames, Corn Volmark of Harlow, whose grandmother had been a younger sister of Harren's grandsire, declared himself the rightful heir, quote, of the Black Line, and assumed the kingship. Not all Ironborn accepted this claim, however. Yeah, if they had, it might have just gone peacefully and they may have bent the knee to Aegon on their own. And that would be that. And Aegon would be like, yep, I don't have to do anything. He may have, that may have been something he hoped for. He may not have expected it to be likely, but it was certainly on the table as a possibility. But Corrin Volmark was unable to unite the Ironborn. By the way, this is the only other Corrin we've ever heard of besides Corrin Halfhand. I believe I heard the theory from Nina that there's a chance that Corrin Halfhand is Ironborn. Not what you would expect necessarily, but absolutely possible. Now, generally speaking, if someone's claim to a throne or a seat or whatever, a title, it causes you to scrunch up your face calculating it. Like, wait, grandmother had been a younger sister of Heron's grandsire. Wait, what is that? If if it causes you to like feel like you're doing math, <laughs> it's probably a bit specious. It probably isn't a very strong claim in terms of blood. However, it tells you nothing in terms of how strong the claim is vis-a-vis -vis military strength or political power, <laughs> because that can be, you can have a very thin claim backed by a lot of military strength. This appears to be neither. It didn't have a lot of political power or military strength, and it was kind of thin in terms of blood. Uh, but Nina points out, this is also pretty common. You know, sometimes there's just, the, the it may be a thin claim, but that thin claim may be the strongest. Like thin doesn't mean you know, there's anything thicker. <laughs> so like Henry the seventh of England, right? He was the great, great, great grandson of King Edward the third through the legitimized female line. And then when the 1701 act of settlement acknowledged electress Sophia of Hanover as heiress to the British crown, there were more than 30 people that probably had a stronger claim. But because they were all Catholic, Queen Anne turned to the youngest daughter of her grandfather's sister. Shay, do you remember that TV show? Uh, what was it called? The one where the the two heirs, the English, it was a, the two heirs almost from Royal. Almost Royal, where every the beginning of every episode, it said Poppy and Georgie are fifty first and fifty second in the to the line of the British throne. The next episode will be Poppy and Georgie are sixty seventh and sixty eighth. The next episode, Poppy and Georgie <laughs> are thirty third and thirty fourth, and I would just change every time. <laughs> they would just just make up a new number every time for it. And this is kind of that. Like I'm like, this is Corn Valmark. I don't know if he's his claim might have been the best, but that doesn't mean it was good, right? That the argument both works both ways. It might be the best claim, but that doesn't mean it's a good claim. <laughs> and but they're 
but who else is there? There's no one. It's a problem when someone's claiming the throne and, and no one has a strong claim. So it really, it only comes down to military and political power if no one has a, a strong blood claim. Religious power. Right, which is where I'm going. That's where religious power is going to come up huge here because of the the power vacuum of political and military power is filled by religious power. <laughs> so while Aegon is off receiving the blessing of the most important religious figure in Westeros, meaning the High Septon, a less important religious figure to Westeros as a whole, but the most important religious figure in the Iron Islands was emerging, or, or I guess he was becoming the most important at this time. His name was Lodos, and we'll see him in a second here. In addition to showing some contempt for the Isles via making them a low priority, right, which is where we come back to reminding ourselves that Aegon accepted the Seven. He took on a new religion, but it wasn't the religion of the of the Iron Isles. So they're seeing him switch religions, and and they're still on the outside of all that. So the power of religion again. This is what this is kind of this is pretty realistic, I think. You have a lot of back and forth. You have power vacuum. You have people killing each other. Religion floods the void, and in religion in the Iron Isles is already extremely powerful. The drown the priests of the drowned god wield more power than perhaps the priests of almost any other religion around the world. Maybe the red priests are an exception, but I don't even know about that. They, if it's the case, it's, it's partly because they're so numerous, but man, the drowned priests have a lot of power. Let's hear about that quote. On Oldwick, under the bones of Naga the Sea Dragon, the priests of the drowned god placed a driftwood crown on the head of one of their own, the barefoot holy man Lodos, who proclaimed himself the living son of the drowned god and was said to be able to work miracles. Other claimants arose on Greatwick, Pike, and Orkmont, and for more than a year their adherents battled one another on land and sea. It was said that the waters between the islands were so choked with corpses that krakens appeared by the hundreds, drawn by the blood. Can that, I say real quick, though? Yeah. Every time I say the words driftwood crown, I hear we had a blooper one time where I think it was Aziz who said it. He said the driftwood clown. I did. I was, I was like trying my hardest as I said it. I was like the driftwood crown. <laughs> the clip. We Unfortunately, we lost this clip. I had a collection of clips of, of goof goops, mostly my own and the hard drive that that was on died. So we lost all those comedy clips. And I, I immediately just busted out laughing. I just like heard myself say driftwood clown and then just stopped stunned at the humor that I had accidentally uttered. <laughs> so this is a great, great quote. It brings in brings in a, a lot of fantasy elements, but also real world like religious traditions where some powerful person declares themselves the son of a god, whether it's Jesus or any number of people before him or after him, you know, declaring themselves the son of Egyptian gods or of Phoenician gods or just you name it. People like Achilles is a descendant of, of Zeus and Thetis and, all, you know, like. Alexander the Great claims to, to be descendant of Heracles, who is descendant of, of, of Zeus, etc. Like making yourself divine is a age-old tried and true practice in settings of both real and fantastical. So said he can work miracles. That's I mean, he declares yourself the son of God and can work miracles. That that does sound familiar, doesn't it? So 
That's kind of neat. And this is one of several mentions of Krakens being drawn to the surface thanks to large amounts of blood. George is dropping those hints of what happens when there's lots of blood in the sea and associating that with the Ironborn and speaking of the Forsaken chapter and <sighs> exciting. Yes, yes. So speaking of Euron and Aaron as well, Euron knew to get rid of Aaron because of stuff like this. He's like, he knew his history. He knows how much of a hold the drowned priests have on the iron. He's like, I can't let this get out of hand. I can't like this priest was crowned. That's pretty unusual. Like you, like Baylor, the blessed was crowned, but that's, he's a Targaryen. Like how often is a Septon crowned or a religious leader had a crown put on their head? Not very often. And here it almost seemed normal. Whereas in other places it'd be like, whoa, that is bizarre. This it's like, like when Aaron in Aaron's chapter, his first chapter, he hears Balon is dead. He's like, who should sit the sea stone chair? A bunch of his followers were like, you should. They, they went right to it. They're like, Aaron, drift, Aaron, damp hair, king, king Aaron. And he's like, I was made to be a prophet. He's like, the drowned God made me to be a prophet, not a king. You know, blah, 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 blah. Which is why I know Euron is not fit because he's <laughs> like, don't put me on, but definitely don't put Euron on. <laughs> like he's worse, you know? <laughs> but his argument wasn't that a religious sh leader shouldn't be it. It just ha so happens I'm not the religious leader that should be it. You know? Yes. And so, and he still wields, and you can see he wields enormous power. It was just, he's like, you know what we should do? King's moot. And the whole Iron Islands is like, yes, King's Moot, because of this one guy, this one priest. I mean, he is a Greyjoy. He's brother of the king. But still, it goes to show the power, like, Tommen couldn't do that. He's the brother of a king. <laughs> he couldn't have just... <laughs> uh, maybe that's not the best example. But still... <laughs> Renly couldn't have done it. Stannis couldn't have done it. Yeah, like, they did a lot, but they couldn't do this, right? So, so Euron is kind of doing a new old way. Like, he calls for the king's moot. It backfires because Aaron gets Euron wins the king's moot anyway. And how does he win the king's moot by promising to do what Aegon did? He's like, Ash is like, you dumb brother. You Aegon had dragons. He's like, no, you're the dumb one, sister. I mean, nephew niece. I've got dragons, or at least I've got a way to get them with this here horn that you all will believe works. And maybe it does actually, <laughs> but <laughs> she didn't see that coming. You know, like, oh, okay, really? Dragons? Yeah. Never mind that these dragons are tiny and are not instruments of conquest near nearly the means of Valerian. But it is a parallel. It is a parallel. And Euron also got rid of Maron Volmark before the king's moot, who had this bloodline, the Whore Dynasty, the one that's even three hundred years later had had some power, had some sway in there, and he's like, "That's one guy." Euron had his plan to win the king's mood, but he still didn't want this guy to participate. He still kind of took this guy out, removed him from the from the picture. He mostly just he didn't care about what the other people were going to say because he knew they weren't going to sway anyone. He's like the the one guy, the the lonely light guy, just starts babbling. Uh, the the one. Uh, Harlaw guy or Volmark, not Volmark guy, Black Tide guy just talks and talks and talks. Everybody gets bored. Asha uncorks root vegetables. Victorian is boring and, and just says, I'll be like Balon who lost, you know? And so, yeah, so they're not, they, you know, Euron's like, I'm not worried about what they're going to say. But he was worried about what Aaron would say, which is why he captured him and why everyone's like, where did Aaron go? What happened to Aaron? Did he, did he die on the way home to his home planet like Poochie? Well, that's an ongoing situation. So Euron knew where the power, who to shut up and who to let talk to best win. He understands his people. 
right? And this is something that is important here for us to understand because Aegon is dealing with this in a way that he doesn't have that experience for. He, he doesn't know how to manipulate the Ironborn in ways that a Ironborn who, who grown up amongst them would, uh, an ambitious, cunning manipulator like Euron. Aegon isn't necess- isn't really like that. And I don't mean that in a good way. Like he just isn't like Euron. That's, that's a pretty low bar. Lodos is a real piece of work though. The guys like the shepherd who you haven't met yet, Sean, that's the Dance of the Dragons religious leader. He's like the high sparrow of the Ironborn, or again, like a Jesus figure where, I mean, many, and I mean many Ironborn died for him, just gave up their lives. Like, like you jump off a wall. Okay. Drown yourself. Okay. You know, that kind of, he had that kind of sway over people. They didn't die for him, like charging into battle. They died for him just to prove their yeah. devoutness. Or yeah. Or that too, both battle and that. And so that's why this is part of why such a strange time in the Iron Islands. You have a, a drowned priest as king. And they're fighting each other when they're not supposed to do that. You hear they're fighting each other so badly that there's krakens and blood in the water. And that's it's wild. Like some some priests might be saying that's a good thing. The krakens are signs of God. <laughs> the, the, the drowned God has sent his his steeds to us or whatever. <laughs> what are they? What, how do they refer to krakens? <laughs> so, yeah. Again, this may have been intentional on Aegon's part. Let them tear each other apart come in later when they're weaker and then settle things regardless of why he did it. This will be the state of affairs until the second year of his reign, not two full years, but during the second year of his reign is when he finally comes to settle that we'll come back to it at that point. Now let's spend the rest of this episode on Dorne chopping off as much of Dorne as we can, because the war is not going to start for a while. So we'll talk about the lead up to it and actual war with Dorne will not end until what 10 AC, but it's not going to start right away either. This wasn't violent at first, as violent and nasty and all out as it gets. It doesn't start off that way. It's always been a bit of a realm apart from the others. The North is sort of like that, too, with geography and and different beliefs and culture. And like we said, so is the Iron Islands. So geography's created a buffer and those cultural microcosms bloom because of that separation. And it's been that way for so long. The separation is less in some ways. Obviously, the North and the Iron Islands have their own religion. Dorne doesn't. But there is, and there's less eth- difference in ethnic origin as well. Though the Roynar are not found in large numbers elsewhere, most Dornish have common ancestors with the rest of Westeros, right? And all first men, etc. And the separation is also a big part of why the submissions and kneelings north of the Red Mountains was not compelling enough to force their surrender. Like, well, just because they bent the knee doesn't mean we have to. If you're... S- if they were your counterparts, like, well, the Reach bent the knee, so the Stormlands will too. Because they're similar. They're way more similar as a cultural group. Stormlanders and Rivermen and the Reach and the Vale have way more in common than they do with the Dornish, even though there are plenty of things to point that they have in common. Not just culturally, but I don't know how to say this, geographically. uh, Yeah, the way they live, like day to day, foods they eat, things like that. Yeah. The Riverlands might maybe are a little less uh, in the parallel I was trying to draw earlier, how like the Reach and other areas would be more have more interconnected societies. Right? Yes. I I feel like the Riverlands are more of some isolated communities that get lumped together. Yes. And that's kind of how I feel about maybe the North and and uh, and Dorne, whereas others are more complete interconnected societies. Yeah. And when you have that, it, when you have a complete interconnected society, you're more susceptible to dragons. Yeah, yes. Than when you're spread out rural communities. Right? And when you are already 
you have that cultural connection that, like you said, they're doing it, so we will too. They made that decision. It seems smart. We will too. It it reflects our cultural values the same way as it does them. They've they're used to having the central authority. It's not essential to the whole read to the entire continent, but it is central to the, the region they live in. Whereas Dorn, as we said, a they haven't had a central authority nearly as long. B that central authority isn't as strong, so they've already valued their independence more. So they already they're united by this ideology of independence, relative relative independence more so than any of the other regions with the possible exception of the iron islands because they have that whole every captain is a king on the deck of his own ship thing but that's still it's a different kind of independence because it's not a national independence more of a like my ship it's a ship isn't a nation right that's it's different in that sense so and so yeah so they value their freedom and independence more like the what the wildlings the free folk are maybe our best bet here they are their knees do not bend as easily like if you expect like you see a number of times where the cultural friction between people south of the wall and north of the wall gets off pace, right? Like where John kneels to Mance and they just laugh at him like, what are you doing, man? Like that's, we don't do that here. Like you goofball. It's like, don't call him my Lord. He calls Corin half and my Lord. And Corin's like, I'm not, I mean, that's not, he's not even free folk. He's just like, I'm a ranger. He doesn't even, he doesn't even get that difference, which is that's within his own people, but it's just, things are done differently north of the wall. Like it's just a, it's just a culture apart from most of the seven kingdoms. I mean, the wall is really far from most of the rest of society. So that makes sense. But John brings that with him until he, he starts to learn not to do that. But it's, it's hilarious when he bends the knee. To, he doesn't even bend the knee to man. He bends to Tormund, <laughs> right? He, he doesn't even, he sees the wrong guy. He's like, oh yeah, wrong. Oh yeah, you're Mance? Oh my bad. And Tormund's just laughing, you know, they're all laughing at him. And Ygritte too is like, you just, you just had to have someone, you're just looking for someone to kneel to, huh? You just got to, he does kneeler's knees or you're in, got to kneel to somebody. It's, it's, it's the Dornish are like, yeah, we're not, our knees aren't itching to bend. <laughs> we are, we, a lot of days, like the Dornish are more like the type who, you might not see your Lord more than like, or even deal with him more than once a year. Whereas like a river Lord, there's a lot more back and forth with like, the levees and the harvests and all this other stuff. And yeah, they're just, they're just less connected even in their day-to-day -day lives. So that's pretty important. So Aegon, uh, so the farther you are, just the way they live makes them less susceptible to dragons. There are not, they're already not a culture that masses huge armies to fight each other. Cause you, it's hard to have big armies in the desert in the first place. It's just, a, it just doesn't make sense. Logistically you can't like, how do you, where are you going to get enough water and food to maintain that host? And, and with all this independence, why would there even be a big army? Like, who, where is this coming from? So they're naturally more predisposed to, to stand up to dragons because their method of war isn't a huge disadvantage. The way they are used to fighting doesn't make them an automatic loss, right? Whereas the way the, the Reach and the Riverlands, the way they fight, it just sets them up to lose. Whereas the Dornish guerrilla tactics, hiding, sneaking, ambushing, that doesn't present a set of disadvantages to facing dragon. In fact, that's a good way to go about facing dragon. It might actually work. And it hadn't been tested yet. No one had tried this guerrilla style warfare against the dragons yet. The Dornish like, hey, we're good at this. We haven't seen that it works. When the high towers bent the knee, they were like, everyone tried. We tried nightly combat in a number of different ways and none of it worked. The Dornish can't say that. They can't say, well, we tried our way of war and it didn't work. No, it hasn't been tried yet. They haven't tried yet. So they, they're not willing to surrender until they've tried. Well, they weren't even willing to surrender after that, <laughs> but definitely not before. Clearly Aegon and his sisters expected otherwise though. They walked in, they sent one dragon 
and one rider. I don't think they would have just done that if they expected otherwise, but that is what happened. They were mistaken. Quote. Rhaenys Targaryen had no such easy conquest. A host of Dornish spearmen guarded the prince's pass, the gateway through the Red Mountains, but Rhaenys did not engage them. She flew above the pass, above the red sands and the white, and descended upon Vaith to demand its submission, only to find the castle empty and abandoned. In the town beneath its walls, only women and children and old men remained. When asked where their lords had gone, they would only say, away. So let's look at where Vaith is on the map. It's a pretty neat location here. Their sigil is a little bit like the Cleganes. Instead of three black dogs, they got three black leopards. Uh, yeah, that's cool. So instead of capitulating, they'd kind of agreed tacitly to a countrywide strategy of just don't face the dragons, don't surrender. Just don't even talk to them, basically, and, and here on. The only one that would talk to them, well, we'll get to it in a minute. We'll see. I wonder if House Vaith and House Santigar are, are very related. They both have leopards. Oh, it just do really, they? And it really just speaks to like the I idea of there being, you know, yeah. Because remember Spotted Silva of House Santigar, like oh, yeah. she, they're, they're leopards. But I just never considered the idea that Vase and Vase and Santigar mm. might have married. Or maybe just, yeah. I never really thought about how, how much that speaks to how many leopards there must be in, or have been in Dorne. That's a good point. You know, one day we're going to do, you know, animal stuff, more animal stuff and, and regional animals and Westerosi animals, SOC animals. That would be neat to kind of use sigils as a way to try to figure out maybe what type yeah, of animals regional, actually live in that area or live. Or did. Yeah. 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 Did, yeah. Cause live. like it's pretty easy to see like people having like over, over hunted the leopards. Cause they are so like, yeah. Distinct. Yeah. It's really easy to imagine that having happened. So there's very few or something now. Good call. Yeah. Or something from the Roynar having brought over. Yeah. There maybe, I don't know, but maybe there aren't many oh. leopards there in the first place. Like there aren't any lions in England, but so many of the crests of the royal families have lions in them. That's yeah. a great point. That totally, we could look that maybe there were leopards in Essos and along the Royan or something. I, I, it seems likely enough that they, are there, are there desert leopards? I think, so. I think, I don't know. Big cats. This could be a good question for George at some point. So Rainey's might have been a little confused. She shows up at Vaith and they're like, they're not here. And she'd be like, well, that's weird. Like, because it's not just the lords are away. It's like everyone's away. There's like some some older people, some children, you know, no, no one noble, no one to take as a hostage. Not that she could take a hostage anyway. She's by herself on her dragon. Like, how is she going to strap a hostage on her saddle? I mean, I guess she could do that, but that's a little weird. So... It'd be a little risky physically getting a hostage. Yeah, like, you know. yeah, exactly. And so she would be like, huh, I wonder what's going on here. She, she would have, this is what she'd be thinking about while flying to the next castle. Like, what are they doing here? What's their game? Why are they, like, am I going to have this happen again? If I sh fly to another castle, are they going to also not be there? Well, let's see what happened next. Quote. Rhaenys followed the river downstream to God's grace, seat of house Illyrian, but it too was deserted. On she flew. Where the green blood met the sea, Rainies came upon the planky town where hundreds of pole boats, fishing skiffs, barges, houseboats, and hulks sat baking in the sun, joined together with ropes and chains and planks to make a floating city. Yet only a few old women and small children appeared to peer up at her as Meraxes circled overhead. So let's also look at these locations on the map just to situate ourselves. And you can see where she came from and where she went. She went from Vaith down to uh, 
God's grace and near Planky Town. Of course, the people of Planky Town might feel a little vulnerable with the dragon around and all, all these ships and their livelihoods. Just one breath of Meraxes could wipe out, you know, like a, a third of them and start a fire that might wipe out most of the rest. But of course, that wasn't her business. She wasn't there to destroy them, not yet. <laughs> and they weren't there to kill her, right? They could have. She's by herself. She's walking into castles by herself without a guard. If they had wanted to kill her, they could have. But they clearly didn't go straight to that option. They're definitely going to try that later, but it's not their first move. I, I, I assume because they didn't want it to become a blood debt situation right away. Kill one of Aegon's sisters and he's not going to publicly, he's not going to be able to do anything other than bring massive fire and sword down on you. And they didn't want to do that. They wanted to maybe find a third option, uh, a way to dissuade the conquest but not a way to encourage revenge you know so the staying away method is what we see here i'm gonna say before you take the map down real quick just because i was thinking about it looking at it just going back to what we were saying earlier about the differences in uh the cultures and how the geographic regions kind of preserve that and how i was saying that, that dorn is more this loose union of a bunch of different cultures rather than an interconnected society like you know the west or something just think about how different and far away planky town and black Mountain. yeah yeah like this coastal town versus buried in the middle of the mountains and the distance between them i, I wish i knew a little bit better but that's probably as far as from the reach to winterfell right that's it's, it's, it's very just far. left right difference instead of you know east west instead of north south but maybe not quite that far but very far yeah. but if someone in sunspare makes some proclamation or says you know send an envoy to me or gather an army think how long it takes for that message to get to the tower of joy or sandstone yeah just sending that message and then the response to it and it, like it's 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 so much harder for Sunspear to have the same sort of direct control over its envoys than say the reach over Old Town or Old Town over one of its bannermen or I think even Winterfell over I think you mostly still have ravens with messages, which wouldn't be too bad, but you're right, like any but not obviously not all messages go by Raven. Like most messages don't go by Raven because most people don't have a maester and trained Ravens to, <laughs> right. but yeah. But, so, say, mm. but say the Raven can get there fast and they're not affected yeah. by the heat of the desert or going across the heights of the mountains. But with it, what if the message is we're having a feast, send your prince <laughs> yeah. and four soldiers or whatever. Then they have to cross the mountains, cross the desert. You know, it's it's crazy to think about how far ahead you have to send the invites out for medieval parties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's <laughs> something that they might be excited to do. What if it's like we're gathering army to go attack the, the dragon lords or something? Or we, yeah. we're setting up a defense against the dragon lords or whatever it is. You could see how the message might be, hey, Black Mom, just hide out. Mm -hmm. Just hide out. And so we'll see what happens. We're going to hide out. You hide out. You know, they're, I really like they're that. They're not going to have this organized front against the Targaryens. I agree because it's it's it is it does seem like they may have had a united strategy. Like I I flow to the idea that maybe this is just kind of because they share an ideology. This is how they're going to handle it. But it seems like this was a concerted effort that they had discussed. The fact that no one was there to meet her until except for one very specific person who was there to meet her, as we'll see in a second, and had just has just so happens to be the leader of Dorne. So mm. it sounds like this was prearranged. Like no one talked to her, let her come all the way to me and I'll give her the final message, which is 
Well, let's hear it. Well, before we do this message, can I just show, say something about this map? Absolutely. Um, Sean, you were bringing up the distance from Blackmont to Plankytown and looking at it there. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to like, and you were comparing it to the Reach versus Winterfell. I just want you to visualize that, like, picture the end of the desert to the tip of the desert. That's the distance you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Look at High Garden up to Winterfell. It's it's four okay. or five times more. That is much farther. Yes, it, it's much. <laughs> I just thought it would be helpful for you to see it visually right here. Uh, ultimately, anyways, just that. I, I might have picked a bad example, but I think you can easily pick two cities that are far apart. They're clearly you could have far said apart. White there Harbor to as far as White Harbor to the Erie is probably about similar. Or, yeah. yeah, how about like from the sisters to Dragonstone? Sure, that's really maybe far. that that is maybe still even twice as far. Maybe okay. three okay. quarters as much. But anyways, the, sorry to have a digression. I just had to. I just wanted to it just boggle no, the yeah. mind sometimes how big the world actually is. When I like, I'm always down for a, a map yeah. discussion. Yeah, though, so. yeah. Just when you see it, <laughs> when you see it map. zoomed in on Dorne, it looks so big, and then you see it here in Westeros, and you're like, that's just a tiny little. Okay, as long base. as we're getting into the weeds of this, though, and just to defend myself a little bit, maybe I wonder if the North is stretched out, kind of like our maps of Canada are. You know. Yeah, I, I actually I do think, think so. that that's possible, that there is some slight distortion, just because I, I don't know. It's possible. But I, I, I mean, we're told the North is larger than not yeah. just, and that's not because of maps. That's just because of travel. And like, think of how long it takes for the Northern host to gather and all that. That's partly because of the difficulty of messages and, and getting, you know, raven, places where ravens don't go. But yeah, some of that would be worse in a desert scenario. Or right. I was going to say, aside from the straighter distance, there's also the train. It's easier to travel across these forests yes. and fields and against the deserts and mountains. So. But there are rivers to cross. And even though there's deserts, there's also rivers to cross. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, so it's not a simple thing. You can't just look at the map and be sure. That's that's one thing we can tell from, from this mini debate here, discussion. Yeah. That it's not just as simple as looking at distance, but that definitely gives us a ballpark figure. It help, definitely helps. And also, it's a good time to remind folks that you can, if you're listening on Spotify, or if, obviously if you're watching the video, you're, you've seen all this, but if you're listening on Spotify, nowadays you can click a button and turn the video on and then turn it back off. So you're not using a lot of bandwidth, your phone isn't using as much battery, but if you want to just briefly be able to see what we're talking about and then have the screen off the whole time, you have that option nowadays on Spotify. You click the video feed on, look at what we're talking about, and then click it off when it's just us in front of our microphones again. So I want to just take my take a time uh, an opportunity every once in a while to remind people that that's an option because that's a fairly new thing in the podcast world to be able to have to have video at all, but to have video doesn't mean just because people people think of it as all or nothing, but you don't have to. You can have the video on just for a few moments at a time. Yes. If you if for some reason you can't have it on the whole time. So now I can read my quote. Yeah, yes. now it's backing up to where we were, which is the next step in Rhaenys's travails and treks around Dorne, quote. Finally, the queen's flight took her to Sunspear, the ancient seat of House Martell, where she found the princess of Dorne waiting in her abandoned castle. Maria Martell was 80 years of age, the maesters tell us, and had ruled the Dornish men for 60 of those years. She was very fat, blind, and almost bald, her skin sallow and sagging. Argilac the Arrogant had named her the Yellow Toad of Dorne, but neither age nor blindness had dulled her wits. I will not fight you, Princess Maria told Rhaenys, nor will I kneel to you. Dorne has no king. Tell your brother that. I shall, Rhaenys replied, but we will come again, princess, and the next time we shall come with fire and blood. 
Your words, said Princess Maria, ours are unbowed, unbent, unbroken. You may burn us, my lady, but you will not bend us, break us, or make us bow. This is Dorm. You are not wanted here. Return at your peril. Thus, Queen and Princess parted, and Dorn remained unconquered. It's a different kind of princess and the queen. Yeah, that's true. The princess and the queen. I can only hear Ian Glenn saying that in his great delivery of the princess and the queen. Yes, because yes, Ian Glenn slash Jorah did read the princess and the queen. Pretty cool. So, Sean, you had in our notes, you're wondering about the phrase fire and blood here. Now, of course... The phrase, we don't know how long they- I, I knew that they didn't have a sigil before, right? That was something that they came up with as part of this conquest. And it made me think, oh, did they have words before? The words came at the same time. Yeah, okay. So but so I wondered yeah. if they, if this is where they were coming from or they must have just come up with these words. This is like, the was this the first time it got run out there, you know? <laughs> I think it might be the first time it was run out there. Yeah, because like it's neat that, uh, that she says it that way. It sounds like another one of those examples where the his historians kind of just- wrote with there like there's no witness to this you know this it's not like it's specifically said when heron and Aegon have a conversation it says the maesters were there so they know exactly what was said that's the only time they say the maesters were there so we know exactly what was said <laughs> so all these other times this is made up dialogue of course it's made up dialogue but i mean it the, you see this in history books all the time real history books where Invented dialogue is inserted by historians. It is extremely common. You, I, I had that day when as a, as a young person interested in history, I remember reading ancient history, but I was just reading like a battle speech before some battle. I don't even remember which, what it was. And it just dawned on me. He's like, how do they know what he said? Of course, they don't. <laughs> the answer is they don't have any idea what he said. They completely just put words in the mouths of these powerful people just to make it, I don't know why, just to make it feel more realist. I don't, yeah, just to put us there. A know. bunch of different reasons why, yeah. Entertainment, I propaganda. Like it. Yeah, I'm not against it, but we should see it for what it is. And this is or, what George is doing, following a real world tradition here. Attempts to find the truth too. There might be like, yeah, maybe stories of what was said were passed down, even I don't really know. And whatever the story is, probably gets manipulated a little bit to make it sound more exciting or interesting or appropriate for the morality of their culture, you know? Do they really say their slogans like that? You, we're unbowed, unbent, unbroken, you know, like that's our words, your words are fire and blood. Were they really chatting via slogan? Maybe, I mean, it's it's, it's possible because it does fit the situation. It's like, well, our words say we don't do that. It was like, well, our words say we're gonna come make you. Like, all right, then we'll see whose words are stronger. <laughs> slogan fight, you know, slogan, slogan battle, slogan wars. So, yeah, this was maybe the first time that this the word fire and blood were used, like projected that way, because you're right. They didn't have those words until they decided to be more Westerosi. Like, we need a banner and house words like all these other houses. So let's do it. And so, yeah, this is them projecting that out into the world. So according to fire and blood. When this is happening, when Maria of Dorne is saying nope to Rhaenys, around the same time this is happening, Aegon is being crowned at Old Town. He may have already been crowned. So they may have been, again, we were talking about how that was a little premature. It may have been very premature. She may not have even spoken with the with uh, with uh, Maria yet, or Miria yet. So he's calling himself King of All Westeros, and Maria's just waiting there to be like, no, not all Westeros. And... This is why we suggested maybe a little bit of overconfidence because 
Aegon's not going to win them over by violence, nor will any of his descendants. 190 years before a full submission, and that's through marriage. And like I said, it may have made their resistance all the more fierce that he insulted them by claiming dominion without even coming to their country in the first place. Now, Maria, Maria, clearly named for Nymeria. It's Nymeria. Yeah, it's one of my favorite details, by yeah. the way. I just want to shout that out. <laughs> Presents another potential angle for, for us here in explaining Dornish resistance. It's quite possible their resistance would have been just as fierce without this angle, but I think this matters. Nymeria led her refugees away from where? From the destruction of the Roinish cities by who? The Valyrians, the Dragon Lords. They're very much predisposed to standing up or not bowing to Dragon Lords. Like, it's in their history. The people, all their royal family is named after. <laughs> this is what they did. Like, it wouldn't, it would be demeaning in a lot of ways or it would insult their own history to give up, especially without a fight. Like they fled all that way. They went through all those travels and travails. The Odyssey of the Roinar. It's their their equivalent. And they're they're just gonna bend the knee to the next drag to a dragon lord six hundred years later without a fight after all that. What a what an insult to all they had gone through, all they had fought for to keep their culture alive, right? Like that's yeah, come on, you can't do that. I mean, I'm not there, I'm not in charge, but you would think that would matter a lot. Yeah, and these all these names, it's not just Maria, right? It's or Miria, there's Nymeros. The title is Nymeros Martell, right? <laughs> Nymor is like her son or her... Yeah, there's just... Half of them are named after Nymeria, so they clearly value the thing she valued and, and hold her in high regard and the thing she stood for. So what are they going to just become slaves of another set of dragon lords that they fought so hard to resist? Yeah, I just can't see it. Yeah, like... Mm -mm, mm -mm. But Aegon seems to have ignored that. He, he, he seems to have understood the history of a lot of the other people he was going after. This looks like a pretty big oversight to not consider that the descendants of those who fled his ancestors would not submit so easily the second go-round here, even though it's been 600 years or more. They clearly haven't forgotten. Uh, so I think there's definitely some oversight, some over confidence as well as maybe missing some important details if they had thought some of these things through or been more aware of them i think they would have known that they wouldn't be bending the knee so easily that doesn't mean they wouldn't still approach it the same we'll still okay we'll go through the motion send an envoy ask for your submission you say no back to the drawing board because it's not like it went straight to war after that either it's not like war just immediately started it's not like rainy didn't fly home and say okay get the army ready let's go no no there was there was actually more to it but what we'll get to as the timeline moves forward there was more peaceable attempts before it turned to war so the, the war the violence doesn't start for quite a while still and there there's so there's a large number of reasons why the Dorn we, we've we've pointed out why the dornish would see the situation different culture geography history big one here with the with the roinar especially them but beyond that just their ability to resist their confidence and understanding and, and their strategies and and thinking maybe we have ways that will work in war that they don't. So Aegon was proved wrong. Like he, whether he, his advisors told him, and here's another angle to this, by the way, who is, who are his advisors at this point? Who's telling him how to handle the Dornish, like the Reach and the Stormlands, people who 
have a lot of bias, if not prejudice, <laughs> if not trade up racism against the Dornish. So they're probably not going to give very good advice. Their advice might be tinged with that. Oh, well, we've been fighting. My Lord or my King, your grace. We've been fighting these people for thousands of years. Let me tell you a few things about them. But then it's all just tinged with through the lens of war and, and raids and back and forth and bitterness and, and blood feuds and not an honest assessment of what they're capable of. It's like, oh, the Dornish, they're cowards. They always run away. That's why you should be worried. <laughs> they're not cowardly. The fact that they won't face you is a problem. If they would, if they were just going to line up and face you, then yeah, then it will be easy because you'll just burn them like you burned anyone else that dared face you head on, but they're not. And that's why you should treat them differently. So, yeah. Uh, Nina says, this is why it's important not to read history backwards, that because Dorne was successful in resisting Targaryen conquest for nearly two centuries, the Targaryens were stupid for trying in the first place. No, it's not that simple. Yes, I think they made mistakes, but it's not like, like you said, Sean, in Aegon's defense, it did kind of seem like common sense to bend to me, even though there's all this cultural separation, even though they're more stubborn, even though they value independence more. It's still Balerion and all of Westeros raid against them that's still a lot to say we can beat that we can stand up to that you know like <laughs> it's still common sense still argument to bend the knee is still very strong like a lot of the arguments a lot of the arguments you might use for why dorn quote unquote shouldn't have bent the knee let's stand for winterfell too but winterfell still bent the knee so like the culture differences the history the physical barrier all this stuff yeah winterfell had all that too and they still bent the knees so. yeah and just from the Dorn's perspective, like maybe it was a maybe it was a f bad idea to resist, but they weren't wrong if they could stand up to the dragons. They didn't beat the dragons, but the dragons didn't beat them either. I mean, Daron the first came in later and conquered them for a few years, but that was also without actual dragons. That was regular military. So, yeah. So uh, again, I think comparing them to the free folk makes a lot of sense. Very hard to subjugate. Not pop, they don't have population centers. The way they fight uh, makes them less vulnerable. Uh, they're the they're the Dornish of the North, or the they're the free folk of the South, <laughs> whatever you want to say it. And also, like if you think about this, Westerosi to fight dragons, they would have to adapt. They're bad at adapting. <laughs> done, they're just not. They just do things the way they've always done them. You know, Westeros is very conservative in that regard. They just it's like. If it worked before, do it again, even though if everything is different, <laughs> you know, we'll still do the things that we've always done. Dorne's not quite the same. Uh, he was right to predict that the rest of Westeros would kind of just do what they've always done and that that wouldn't work. But uh, Dorne also did what it always has done, and it did work to a... To a I, I want to bring a counterpoint there, too, that it, it's not so much that they're not good at adapting is that they are more established. Dorn is less established. They don't have big cities, right? Once you have a big city, I guess it's harder to adapt, yes. but it's because you already made adaptations in ways that cause your society to thrive, right? Dorn isn't thriving. They haven't built a great set. They don't have a citadel. They don't have, eventually they build water gardens, but um, hundreds of years later, you know, I, I'm just saying that they don't, it's kind of like we said before, they don't have as much to lose. They don't have these big population centers. They don't have fields of wheat or whatever else yeah seems. that's very true and they have they, caves it's easier in. for them to adapt when they don't have as much to lose yeah yeah like remember how it was difficult for damon to defeat the crab feeder in both book and show version because they kept hiding in caves that's a it's a, it's a very good place to hide from a dragon <laughs> caves like dragons can't follow you into a cave it's yeah. a good adaptation but you're living in a cave right <laughs> you know like 
Yeah. Yeah, it's not good, yeah. but it will keep you alive, at least. It's a good place to hide, but it's a great, it's not a good long-term solution, but it absolutely works in a pinch. And and the Red Mountains are full of caves. Like, not all of Dorne is full of caves, because a lot of it's desert and or waterways or whatever, but the places that have mountains, it's a good place to hide. And so, the, at least it works, in this, it's better than burning to death, that's for sure. Another angle I want to take to make it, again, again, I'm presenting a counterpoint, but it's kind of like saying it, especially given how sudden it was for a dragon to show up. It's kind of like saying Japan wasn't good at adapting to the nuclear bomb. I was like, yeah, no one's good at adapting to the nuclear bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they could have all fled the cities yeah, can, and lived out in the woods Die. and had crappy lives. And that would have been a way to adapt. But yeah. We're not good at adapting nuclear bombs. If someone drops a nuclear bomb on New York, the argument isn't, well, America's not good at adapting. You're like, no, it's just nuclear bombs are hard to adapt to. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a big consideration here too. Like when we hear about Aegon prior to the conquest, and there's that note in the book that says, some believe Aegon had never left Dragonstone before the conquest, but that's not true because we know about him going to Lannisport and hawking on the arbor and other things none of those mentions are of him going to dorne which possibly feeds the theory that he had misconceptions about it about how their what their culture was like he may have thought it was more similar than it was or more different than it was or who knows again the hearing about them through the reach and the stormlands might have got given him the wrong idea and he didn't know how he didn't know better himself by not having gone there. So yeah, that's I think that's pretty important. So and of course, as we said before, like you said about the big city thing too. Even if they had a big city, they would be reluctant to destroy that because they want to roll it afterwards. They don't necessarily want to torch it. It still would be kind of a last resort. That it's a last resort we're almost gonna see. <laughs> so it's gonna show how bad this war gets. They're not gonna torch the Shadow City or Sunspear, but almost everything else is going to be that is gonna happen. So they're not gonna. Aegon is going to show, well, if I, it is in his wheelhouse, like I will, I can go that far. You know, he, he doesn't want to necessarily, but it's, it's almost like the uh, don't make me do it kind of things. Like, well, no one's making you do it, but it is, that is the threat that he's making. Like if you, if you quote unquote, make me do this, I will do it. And you know, I'm capable. You've seen my dragon and you know what it's capable of. You know, uh, you know, I had a thought in here that I'm adding to it's occurring to me something I brought up in a past episode is it remember Aegon did intend to go down to Dorne more quickly, but stopped to go confront Torn. Yes. What if Aegon, what if, what if right after burning Heron Hall, yeah. Aegon had gone down to Dorne where one, they might not have had as much time to come Ooh. up with a plan. And two, Heron Hall burning would have been the story right now. The story is he burned Heron Hall, but then did he burn old town? No. Did he burn the reach? No. Winterfell? No. No. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of moved past the burning cities down thing, huh? Maybe maybe he won't burn down Sunspear. Maybe he won't scorched Earthus. He, you know, maybe they were kind of taking advantage of what I think was correct mm. for Aegon to not have the Scorchers policy. But once they realize that, they're like, let's just leave the cities. He's got no one to conquer. I don't think he's gonna burn them down. It's not what he's doing, right? Like eventually he shifts gears, but Yeah. But that might add to why they did And it just doesn't ring it might as add loudly. To why they did what they did. And, it, and why it might have gone so much differently if he had been able to go straight there after Harrenhal instead of dealing with the North and a field of fire and everything first. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. And Harrenhal is just a much bigger, bigger better example, too, because it's so centrally located, so huge. 
like destroying one of the Dornish castles, which is going to happen on multiples. It just doesn't have that same effect on the rest of the country, especially because the rest of the country is already submitted at this point besides Dorn. So yeah, that episode, that episode, that lesson doesn't ring as loudly. It doesn't, nor does it stand the test of time. Like, we don't hear about all the burned castles in Dorne to this day, even though they were burned. Even some of them were burned. We don't hear about all the lasting damage and how that serves as an example because they're so they're all relatively remote. Like the story Song of Ice and Fire doesn't go there, <laughs> except for a little bit with Ariane. And even then, we don't see the evidence of this destruction. It's all, I guess, been rebuilt. Or and and one other piece that we had brought up before too is that if he had gone straight to Dorne, in a weird way, they might have felt like we're the next most important. He came to us, so we respect it. Okay, we'll need. But when he saves him for last, like, screw you, man. Yeah. You're not going to burn us down anyway, you know. And they ended up getting second, sort of second primary. That ended up being a problem for the other houses when eventually they, they were brought in by marriage. They got concessions that the other regions didn't. And that was, so they kind of like, we did get second place, y'all. <laughs> the rest of y'all are behind us now because we get better tax situation. We're the royal family, all this. So so it did kind of work out for them in that sense in the longer, as a country, as a nation, holding out the fact that they were able to withstand the dragons did get them a better deal, you know, almost 200 years later, but it was a much better deal. In the very long term, they might have ended up with a better deal in the long term also if they had kneeled right away. Like if all their people hadn't, their homes hadn't been burned and everything so that's also potentially true yeah that's a really tough call yeah we have no idea what would have been the outcome of that and they went into it with a different strategy because this is interesting too like they maybe because they saw what happened or because it's just naturally how they handle warfare the reach played to win they played to beat Egon. the west played to beat Egon. they wanted to kill him they wanted to defeat him they didn't <laughs> of course, but that was their goal. I'm not sure the Dorn that Dorn is trying to beat Aegon so much as aim for a stalemate. It's a totally different strategy. They're trying to just turn him off of the idea of conquering them rather than straight up beating him. It's like make it not worth it rather than uh actually beat him. Like actually defeat him in a pitched battle. That's they're not even gonna try to meet him in a pitched battle. But if they're gonna win, it's gonna be on an entirely different set of terms. But to me, it seems like they're less trying to win and just trying to not lose, which is different. That's different. Playing for a stalemate is him. Like if you go into a game of chess, aiming for a stalemate, the strategy is very different. I mean, it's rare that you would want to do that, <laughs> but there are times when you would, like in a chess tournament maybe, and certain points matter more, like you're just trying to finish ahead of someone else to make a cut, I don't know, but yeah. Warfare is similar in that the strategy you're taking determines a lot of how you might win or lose and your opponent might mess up because they're thinking you're playing to win when you're not. And that screws up their strategy. So that's kind of interesting to think about it from that sense. I want to get too deep into chess, but time is a factor also. Sometimes when there's only a, there's always time limits and if you get down to a certain amount of time, sometimes a person realizes that there's not enough time to actually get a checkmate wins because they start playing quicker and runs the other person out of time rather than get a checkmate if that makes sense and in a way you could argue time's a factor in uh, yes. war too when it comes to like winter coming or supplies running out or um yeah and uh I, one other thought i had about this that hadn't occurred to me just now when you're talking about going for a stalemate is that george lived through vietnam he you know that's was sort of vietnam's tactic they they were yeah way outclassed in almost every factor but they just hit away you know they didn't it was a different sort of battle than world war ii or whatever and then the, the u.s couldn't even fight it had limitations how it could fight anyway i could go on and on but i think there's a lot of parallels here that i bet george had at least in the back of his mind yeah you're right no that is a very good parallel 
You're totally right. Yeah, they used like the the, the parallel to caves is there with tunnels. The, the Viet Cong made huge amounts of tunnels, and that's like a, a low tech but very effective thing that was just a terror to American soldiers as well as a lot of locals. And we were napalming the heck out of their country, and yeah, like which is part of why they use tunnels, right? Because like the napalm isn't going to get down in there, and the same like dragon fire can't penetrate into the caves too deeply. So yeah, it's a really that's a very good parallel. So. All right, so we'll call that a wrap on our progress for today. That's a good place to end with Dorn. When we come back to Dorn, it will be to discuss the outbreak, the beginning of, of negotiations and then eventually the outbreak of hostilities. That's all going to happen under the reign of the dragon. We're basically out of the conquest phase now. Technically, we could come back to Dorn if people vote on a Dornish topic. That's true. Just saying, if you're feeling Dorn. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so like I said earlier in this episode, we'll, we'll be off of Fire and Blood for about six or seven weeks, return right before the beginning of 2024. In the meantime, we will have a variety of other episodes. So it's not a not a break from episodes, just a, a break from Fire and Blood. We've been down in the in the trenches with Aegon and his sisters for a while. And, and normally we like to mix things up with our topics a bit more than that. So let's do that. Let's not get too uh over-focused on one part of what is such a vast and diverse uh, selection that we have to choose from, but we will certainly pick it back up where we left off and have a lot of fun with that as well. So let's uh, work our way out here. A couple of bits from Julie A. She says, plus the oral traditions from the descendants of the Roinar, they'd have passed down stories of escaping dragons in Valyrian times and the assumption that it's possible would be known. That's true. They have proven in their history that they could outlast or survive the dragons even though they didn't beat them they weren't beaten by them either they escaped them they weren't they weren't enslaved they weren't killed well a lot of them were but as a as a race they they weren't as an yeah and uh julia again says ver pbs or per pbs leopards are the only known species that live in desert and rainforest of of big cats i assume yeah yeah well no i, I think it might, I, I, yeah, it might be it might be mammals i don't know hmm but because uh, someone else oh they live in both desert and rainforest yeah yeah oh the combination of the two yeah because lions live in deserts but not rainforest yeah I see yeah exactly that is interesting that is a very different yeah I'm sure like panthers live in you know like panthers might live in rainforest but not yeah desert and vice like I yeah I was like oh I can't think of any other like mammals that like elephants don't I can think of one immediately I bet there's others humans yeah. Yeah, that's what someone said immediately was humans, but we were clearly speaking. It might be species of cats, but I mean, there might be some bird species, but it would probably be there's probably a difference in that bird, just like this is a leopard is not the same as a cheetah, but they're related. So that's uh, neat. That's very neat. Yeah. All right. The, the trivia question again was who gave Miria her nickname, the Yellow Toad? The answer is Argalak the Arrogant, as was reminded in the quote, one of the quotes that we read today. That's right. So next week, I don't know what our episode will be next week. We're going to be posting a poll, so it will be a surprise. And if you want to participate in the poll and future polls, well, sign up for our Patreon and get not only that, but bonus episodes and lots of other benefits that come with your support. You give us support and we give you bonus you, content. And my question for you is, these, do you know the, the poll topics yet? Not yet. Interesting. Not yet. Okay. Am, well, I'll be I was planning on doing them last it. night, but I've been sick this week. 
my energy level has been terrible. I feel pretty good today. I think I might be finally over it. But yeah, you're 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 you seem a lot better. Whether you just turned it on for the stream and like we might stop recording and Aziz just like deflates instantly. <laughs> but your Maybe energy level both. seems better. Your your mood yeah. and everything. I yeah. do always get hyped up for the stream. I do love that, and I do mm -hmm. have I do have a coffee. Yes, but yes, uh, I do I do tend to pour all my energy into these live streams. <laughs> Lollipop so. points out there are also Siberian leopards and urban leopards too. Whoa. Well, this episode is over, but if you want to stay immersed in Westeros or Essos and Martin World, whatever your name for it, we've got some suggestions, a couple of Patreon episodes, The Last Storm, which is a part of the conquest you may not have heard that we did separately and had a, a Jim McGeehan, our military expert in to be our uh, helper there. The Red Kraken episode, the Red Kraken's run takes place during the Dance of the Dragons, but it's a separate story. It doesn't really have a whole whole lot directly to do with the actual events of the dance. It's more of a side story. So we covered it separately. And in that episode, there's a lot of the same things we talked about here about what's going on in the Ironborn. The Red Kraken was the first one to bring the old way back of the many people who brought it back, who tried to bring it back. The Red Kraken was the first one to actually do it, and he was more successful than even a lot of the ones that did it later, with the possible exception of Euron, which is still ongoing. <laughs> so we'll have to wait and see on that. But the Red Kraken was enormously successful, and he had a political mind several levels beyond most Ironborn. He understood the politics of the realm and how the blacks and greens would go at each other in a lot of ways that was very savvy. He played them. He, he managed to play them off each other a little bit and get the best deal for himself, which enabled him, of course, to go a reaving and raiding and plundering and taking of many salt wives and how the West resisted him and how that all went and how the old the return of the old way and how important that was to the Ironborn and how ready they were to, to be unleashed again and why that made things so bloody. That's well, why that episode is fun and it was co-written by radio westeros so there's uh, an extra benefit to that as well all right as well our nymeria series of course we talked about nymeria quite a bit in this one this might be a good time for y'all to head back to that pair of episodes we still have a third part of that series that we are many years behind on one day we'll get to it but we covered all of her journey we covered everything in valyria and sothorios on all the different trips to the different islands but we didn't cover what happened when she got to Dorne. So one day we're going to do that and that'll be fun to, to finish. But we got those first two for you and I think you'll enjoy them even if you've heard them already. Yeah, yeah. Also, of course, our episodes before the dragons, under the dragons, on the episode on Valerian, the episode on Dragonstone, the episode on House Valarian and House Celtigar. Those will be pretty big. And of course, the episode on the Century of Blood, a lot of stuff that takes place right before the conquest. And of course, our episode on Mantaris, which is another patrons only episode that discusses blood magic and strange doings in the East and fallout from the doom. Lots of cool stuff there. I'm very happy with those episodes. And I hope you are, too. It's like it's I'm really trying to vamp here to give time for Sean to get a cat. And it looks like. Well, I can say something here. One, we just got a super chat from a long-expected soundscape. Oh, hey, Jordan. How's it going? Uh, Jordan is working on... Um, oh, we got a cat now. He's working on Dunkin' Egg, correct? Yeah, he's working on Dunkin' Egg. That's yeah. pretty cool. Um, Which is one of the things we'll discuss when we have our uh, TV show roundup episode. We'll discuss where the Dunkin' Egg show is proceeding and of course house of the dragon and, and other news related to those two shows and other stuff i also feel obliged to tell everyone um 
we were supposed to go to the corn maze on Thursday, but Aziz, obviously, he, he just said he was sick this week, so we did it, but we're going to go tomorrow. It's yes. still open, just barely. There's only a little bit of time before they harvest the corn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look at the kitty. Though. It's been Cora a bunch lately, huh, Sean? She's just the most She's got a white amenable belly. to being grabbed. And to stay in place. <laughs> You have to stay in place. Yeah, it's often her. Which she, as she Cute squirms. Girl. Yeah, as soon as you says say that. a wee leopard. Yeah, the brown leopard. Well, thanks everyone for coming today. Thanks to those of you who support us, uh, either on Patreon or Spotify or through PayPal. Our website contains all the ways that you can do that, all the ways you can find links to our other episodes, all the ways you can find links to anything, any sponsor or product or item that we pointed you to, whether it's uh, other books or other series or other episodes of ours. You can find it all at historyofwesteros.com. Thanks to Nina for her great notes, lots of valuable insight and input into the, the politics and the marriages and the writing process. Just a lot of things I talked to her about ahead of writing things. So even some of the things I've written were influenced by her. So can't thank her enough. Joey, Jesse, Bran, and Michael, you two, you four, you as well, not two, two, T-O-O, you two as well have done great things for us. And I want to thank you for the music, for the maps, for the intro. Y'all are great. Our show feels so professional because of y'all. And to our Benjineer, giving us sound quality assistance here and there and occasionally everywhere. We must as well thank you for that. And to the rest of you for listening, we appreciate it. And we'll be back with more next time. You know what to do. Until then, Valar Reredus.